Who here has heard, of course we all have, but I'll ask you, the, the good old saying that when we know better, we'll do better, right? Grandmother always used to say it. My mother always used to say it. When we know better, we'll do better. I would like to ask you how that's working out. <laughs> right? So, you know, that, that whole when we know better, we'll do better, it really propelled us into collecting a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, because we believed, come on in, welcome, sit anywhere you like. We believed that if we accumulated enough knowledge and knew more, then we would be able to do better. And of course, we know more. And I think really all that that does is sort of create more like shame or embarrassment or guilt, right? Because we know better, but we still can't do better. Yes, so there's no neuroscience at all. And really, I need to be sharing with you today some neuroscience. Because this, come on in. In accumulating this knowledge, we've gone to seminars like this and we've learned all kinds of interventions and different ways of approaching. So whether we're parents and learning new ways of disciplining, we're mostly educators here today and learning other ways, new ways of intervening. And we get excited and we go back to our schools and our classrooms and we think, okay, I got something. Usually it's in a nice colored folder and... It's color-coded or something, and it's got a great name, like Tools for Tough Kids, right? Sounds really good. Some marketers thought of a great name. And we bring that home, and we try it with our gusto, and it works for about how long? A day! <laughs> oh, at least you didn't say hours. You know, sometimes it's for an hour or two. And then it doesn't work. We're going to be learning today, obviously, right, from our title, why that is that these things aren't working. And I'm going to, right now, dive in with you into an experience that is going to help us to understand why what we're doing isn't working. So I could do what we're doing as educators and parents today. and I could dive into the situation, like right now, here, teaching you, with my words, right? We operate with our words, and we want to be able to explain things so that they make sense, because if it makes sense to me and I can make it make sense to you, then we're going to get somewhere. Things are going to get better. But that's not what happens, right? We end up actually wasting a lot of time, energy, and words. And I'm going to explain to you why it actually is a waste, and, oh, really discouraging for us to have spent all that time and energy and not get the result. So I could dive in with you, with all my words. And I have a lot of them. Let's see. Right? I could start talking to you about all this stuff. And some of them are big words. You know, there's a lot. Oh, and we have some visuals, which is always nice. But look at all these words. Concepts and constructs. Trying to make sense out of everything. And I could... You know, get in there with you, as we do as teachers and we do as parents. I could start going over all these words with you. Or we could do something else. We could start here. As long as it's warmer, as as it's warmer than this room. 
let's imagine that we're there right now and it's warmer than this room. Sounds great. Now, what if we started here instead? What, what is this place I'm taking you to? It's more sensory. It's more sensory. We're going to use fewer words and go more sensory for a moment. And I'm going to explain to you why that's so important. And soon the room will settle down and we'll be able to settle down too. Here we go. I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to do this, by the way, in the same way that you can do it with your students or your children, okay? I'm going to ask everybody to just stop doing what they're doing right now. I know it feels important. And it does feel important to, you know, record things, keep record. But I'm going to invite you to have an experience with me instead of being concerned about the words. And I'll explain why this is so essential to changing the brain. So very quickly before I start, do we know any part of the body that's more relevant to education than the brain? Everything that we do. Which one? Our eyes, absolutely, right? And the eyes are mediated by the brain, right? So it's all important. You're absolutely right. Everything that we could name, really, is essential to education. It's all masterminded <laughs> by the brain. Everything that we're capable of doing or incapable of doing is rooted in brain functioning. And so what I want you to know is that if you want a behavioral change in your students or children, if you want a learning change in them, then we have to change where all of that comes from. The change has to happen in the brain. And guess what? The brain changes only in response to experience. Words don't change anything. That's even in the Bible, in Corinthians. That change does not come from words. Change comes from power. And power, I will explain to you today, is an experience in the body. It's not a construct or a concept. You can't talk anybody into feeling it. Okay? We're going to learn about how we help them feel more powerful so that they can benefit from everything you're trying to do with them. Here we go. We're going to stop doing everything we're doing. And I'd like you to uncross your legs. Any good nurse will remember to tell you to do this. You can teach your students this just like this. It's happening in schools all over North America now. We're getting great uh, data collection this year, and they're loving it. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to focus on our feet being flat on the ground. And if you're not really taking advantage of your chair, that's a resource, a very powerful one that you're not using right now. It doesn't have to be that hard. Do you know what I mean? You have support right now in this moment, in any given moment. This is changing test-taking results, by the way, because our students now are going, oh, okay. Now I want you to breathe in through your nose. Okay, so we've got our feet flat on the ground. We're really allowing the, the, the chair to support us, to do the work, take some of the load off. And we're breathing in through our nose, very important. 
looking at this picture, maybe. Or maybe you have another picture. And I want you to just notice what is happening. Here's the most important question to ask your students and your children. What are you noticing happening inside? Anybody want to throw something out that you're noticing? Relax. In about 60 seconds. We're calling this tool, it just morphed to become 60 seconds because it's really all it takes to begin getting that greater sense of my blood pressure is lowering, my heart rate is lowering, I'm expanding, or you may find your shoulders drop, or any of those things. Now, thoughts might come in and say, this is really stupid, how can this be important, (laughs) right? Judgment, judgment, judgment from the neocortex all the time. And that's okay. When that judgment comes in and wants to poo-poo, you can just go back to your tools. It's a cue. It's a cue to go sensory again. The longer we're here in all of that judgment, the longer we're in this cycle of nothing working. I promise, and I'll explain all of that, why that is. But if you can use that thought, whatever it is, use the thought to cue you back to a sensory experience that is soothing, okay? So that's feet flat on the ground, taken in support. You might feel yourself really anchored in your chair, breathing in through the nose and being there or somewhere equally fabulous. Maybe you'd like to be. This isn't working again for me. I don't know why my little arrows don't work. Some people love this. And there we go. That's my favorite indication. That yawn... See, people think yawning is rude. I'm so happy for yawns. Yawning is a physiological sign. It's an indication that your body has moved out of sympathetic. I got to get to this talk. Okay, what am I going to learn today? Right? Sympathetic. You just shifted from seconds of grounding yourself into the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system. That's where all the good stuff happens. That's, you know what that is? You know what neuroscientists are calling that? The yes brain. It's the yes brain. This, you know, okay, what are we going to, what are we doing today, right? This is this tight place. It's very tight, very tight. And this tight place is the no. No. Don't try to cram one more thing into me. No. Right? We're not experiencing that at all with our children or our students, right? They're in the know. Do I have a front row coming? There's four right here, ladies. I can move right out of here. Come on in. Come on in. Welcome. We're learning about the difference between the no brain that doesn't want to do your interventions and doesn't care um, into the yes brain. So let me explain what this is. Let me welcome you, first of all, right, to that place, to that place that feels better. So here's the adage that is supported by the neuroscience. It's not when we know better, we'll do better. We know that's not working out. We know plenty. Not working out. It's 
When we feel better, we do better. When we feel better, we do better. Neuroscientific fact that only, only if you feel well will you do well. This is huge for us as parents and educators. Because if our students and our children aren't doing well, we know for a fact, a scientific fact, that it's because they don't feel well. Now they may be trying to fake it. <laughs> trying to make it look good. Nothing's wrong with me, I'm afraid of nothing. You know, the bravado, whatever it is that they're putting on underneath all of that, sadly is actually terror, a lot of terror that we're going to talk about today, how that is, why that is. So I hope this is visible. No, I'm going to move this because I have a feeling you can't see the, um, yeah, you can. Okay. So I'm going to now, as I was welcoming you to the yes brain, I want you to know that that yes brain place is called the zone of optimal arousal. Our arousal has to be optimum, absolutely optimum, within a range. Yes, you need some anxiety, right? You need some excitement anxiety. And you don't want it to be so big that it starts interfering with everything. So when we're in this place that we just went to, that sadly you missed, huge for the day, but um, we'll do it again. Um, when we're in this place in 60 seconds, now we're experiencing a more optimal range of anxiety and arousal. It soothes it, Ooh, like that. And then we are in this place, the zone between these, between these lines here, and we are in what's called a self-regulated state. Self-regulation. So we know that the single most important capacity for all of learning and adaptive behavior is the capacity to self-regulate your arousal and emotional states. We've heard about self-regulation, but let's really understand what it is and why it's so important to your interventions working. Okay? Because in the zone is where whatever you want to do with them. I'm sure you have learned many fantastic interventions. You just want them to work. They're not working because right now you're trying to teach the little buggers that I call zero tenors. Okay? So the 10 of arousal. The 10 of arousal. What's that looking like? <laughs> what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Right? Really weird. Like, it really is just strange. And you know, you can tell that they can't control themselves, right? Their hands and their legs are they're moving, right? And they're looking at you, and then they're, what are you, what are you, what, what is that? What are you looking at? Right? And, you know, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm actually not even looking at you at the moment, but, right? Oh, yes, you are. What's going on, right? And they want you out on the playground. Notice everything that's going on with everybody else. Come here, come here, come here. Teacher, teacher, teacher. Did you see that? Did you see that? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? Right? Justice and fairness. Nothing's ever fair. There isn't any justice, and they want it. 
They're paranoid. They're suspicious. Right? They've got all this arousal inside of them that's telling them something is wrong. Something is wrong. Help! Right? Now, this something that's wrong, it's not you looking at them. Right? It's something from who knows? Who knows when? But it's stuck inside. I'll explain why that is. And as long as it's stuck inside, right, there's something wrong. This isn't right. Help me. As long as that's stuck inside, they can't do what we need them to do. They can't hear our words. They can't process information. They can't get it out on the page. And I don't care how fancy those interventions are, how pretty, how cute the little, you know, title of them are, is, I should say. All right, that's 10, right? Or they're asleep. Now, in the sleep case, we might find ourselves tiptoeing around their desk. <laughs> Let us leave the sleeping beast alone because we know, I mean, at least we're getting a break from all of this. We know that if we were to wake them up, <laughs> they go out again. There's, you know, there's, there's really very little in between, isn't there? It's this zero tenning, zero tenning. They, have they ever been a four, five, six, seven? I like to call this zone area. Right? Being in the four, five, six, seven, that's where we get to in seconds with our tool that we've already, that we've already uh, experienced. In that four, five, six, seven place, that's where it's going to happen. They're going to get their word brain back. They're going to be able to actually hear what you're saying. It is going to start to make sense to them because they're going to get that reasoning brain back. But until that happens, it's the or the and that's about it. And we're struggling. This is why we're struggling because we're trying to teach the zero ten. And guess what? A zero ten nervous system. That's not a learner. This is a learner right here. So, you know, maybe once upon a time, we had more learners coming in ready. Just not the times we're living in. Not the times we're living in. We have students coming to us and children experiencing this really fast-paced technological world. The bullying has, has taken on a whole new, a whole new uh, level of dysfunction, if you want to say. Uh, because of technology and for lots of other reasons. It's, it's, it's not the same world. We can't compare. There's just no comparison to how it was when we were growing up. So there's this misunderstanding on our part, on our side, that hopefully will get cleared up today to help us understand why those interventions won't work, no matter what you do. If we can do this, we're in business. Now, this here has two, this, this, it's a two-dimensional drawing of something very experiential in the body, which is our autonomic nervous system, which I did refer to. It has those two branches, the sympathetic that goes up, that feels stress, that gets afraid, <clears throat> challenged, angry, any of those things. 
Now, that's a normal part of life. This isn't about eliminating this. This is essential to our survival. It's important. And a little bit of this is what keeps us interested and engaged and motivated, right? You have to have enough of that. It's just when it's too much. Now, on the other side, what counterbalances that sympathetic response is the parasympathetic nervous system. This is what has gone awry. This is the part that isn't functioning the way it really needs to be functioning anymore because the sympathetic has taken over. I'll tell you about why that is. So I just wanted you to see, this is the autonomic and it's two branches. The branch that goes up and of course the branch that soothes and helps to keep us in the regulated state. Now this is supposed to happen automatically. Okay, We don't think about this. We shouldn't have to. And once upon a time, maybe we really didn't have to be very mindful about it. The truth is now, is for so many, that sympathetic going up, it isn't signaling the coping response anymore. And it used to, and for some of us still does, that when we get stressed out, that's cortisol pumping up, and the cortisol indicates to the brain to release other chemicals that help to soothe that and keep it in a manageable range. Now, when stress is chronic, when stress just keeps going and going, eventually that cortisol, it stays high for too long, and when it does, it stops sending its message. It's like the brain says, oh yeah, it's on again, it's always on. It's always on. So that coping stuff, like endorphins or serotonin or, you know, yummy stuff, dopamine. That stuff doesn't kick in. So the cortisol stays high and it interferes with everything. It really is the culprit. It's the culprit for us. It's why in plenty of moments we wish we could teach better or parent better. And we find ourselves saying, I know I'm not supposed to be saying this or doing this. What am I saying? What am I doing? That governance over ourselves depends upon this balance between cortisol that's stressing us and all the other stuff that helps to keep us regulated. This is what's gone awry. Now this is mediated as well. This whole self-regulatory capacity and the autonomic nervous system is controlled and mediated by the big guy, right? The central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. So I have my sad little version of the brain. Let me give you a better one. <laughs> Very sad. Okay. I just, I, I teach better when I draw. So I will be drawing it, but you don't really need it. Okay. So here is, bless you. Here is the uh, triune brain. Now, we know about a fourth part now called the diencephalon. The neuroscience is coming, 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 coming. Every day we're learning something new. Um, but it doesn't change. It's tucked in there between one and two, and it doesn't change our understanding of the triune brain. So what I want us to focus on right now, for just a moment, is this, this lower end here. It's attached to our spinal cord. It's at the base of our skull, called the brain stem, but it has a couple of other names too, for good reason. Also called the animal brain. <laughs> the animal brain or the reptilian brain, because we share it actually with all reptiles, with every living creature on Earth. 
little creatures you can only see through a microscope. A prehistoric fish have this part of the brain. We all, as living creatures, have this part of the brain to ensure our survival, the survival of our species. This is the place that gets lit up, so you've seen what it looks like to have, to have the brain under an MRI. And it's all colored, you know, the colors are in different places for different reasons. Well, when we're in a 10, and even when we're in that zero, which is the shutdown of the 10, from complete exhaustion from the 10, this part of the brain is what is lit up like a Christmas tree under an MRI. And this neocortex, which I call the school brain, the newest part of our brain that makes us uniquely human in every way, gives us our language, all of our processing, our reasoning, everything we want in school, impulse control, attention, focus, concentration, organizational skills, being able to plan ahead, understand consequences of behavior, that if I do something right now, there's a consequence and the consequence and a, right, for years there are consequences. But that's very sophisticated thought and it comes from this more sophisticated part of the brain that is not lit up like a Christmas tree under an MRI when we're in this place of stress. In fact, it's shut down. This comes, these messages for the brain to, to light up the survival brain and shut down the school brain, that comes from the amygdala that we've heard so much about. We've heard of this amygdala thing. What is this amygdala thing? Well, it's a tiny little part. It's about the size and shape of an almond. And it's a tiny part of this uh, midbrain, which is our feeling brain. We call it the seat of our emotions is another word what the neuroscientists call it. So here it is tucked in close to this survival brain because they operate, of course, in consort to make sure that we know to be afraid and what that means in terms of behavior. But it's not conscious. The conscious brain is the neocortex, is the school brain. The unconscious brain is happening absolutely automatically and sending messages in millimillimillimilliseconds that's this feeling brain that sends it down to the brainstem, and those two together. So the amygdala sends a message down. We even know what it sounds like, which I find fun. I'm a bit of a brain nerd, so <laughs> these things excite me. Anyway, um, the, the amygdala sounds like this. If you were to hook it up to a machine, and there are, where you can hear the brain functioning. And when it perceives, now I'm not talking about whether a threat is real or not. There are real threats for sure, plenty of them. I call this planet trauma. <laughs> They're everywhere. And then there's just the perception of a threat, right? When you're walking out in the woods and you hear a branch break. Now your amygdala is going to send a message in milliseconds down to that brain to give you enough cortisol tight constricted muscles really narrowing the senses to, to, to go 
focus on where that sound came from, to perk up our ears to see if there are any more sounds. There's all kinds of sensory stuff happening because we've been shifted now. That amygdala has gone, that's what it sounds like. It sends its chemical message down here to this surviving brain that survives because it only speaks the language of sensations. It has its own language, and it's just sensory. This is highly essential to the whole day of understanding why our interventions aren't working and what we need to be doing differently. This is the brain that's lit up in half, at least half of our classrooms now. This is lit up, and the message Da, 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 also goes up to shut it down. And why would that be? Who here has ever had a gut instinct? I'm hoping I'm going to see all the hands go, okay? I'm assuming that we have all had a gut instinct. That's our word brain. This is our sensory brain. Okay, now that gut instinct or feeling, we call it that because it's something we feel and sense, right? We sense it. We sense that something is wrong and we sense it in our body. This is, this is the body now saying, get out of here. Get, 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 right? We just get out of here. It might say that, it might say something else, but it gives us, right? It starts that arousal process going that lets us know that, my goodness, this isn't gonna be good. This isn't gonna be good. That sensing comes from the ancient wisdom, right? This is the part of our brain we have in the beginning of, of existence. Neocortex is our new brain, right? It's developed over time in response to experience. And so we have this neocortex that's becoming more and more sophisticated. But what we've always had is this. <laughs> and it happens really, really quickly, and it keeps us alive. So this happens a lot faster. The only concern this brain has is survival. A single focus. That's how quickly it operates. The neocortex that manages millions of functions, millions of functions. Really, we're just, we're barely learning about what this brain can do. Well, that, those millions of functions means that the brain operates really much slower than this that goes right into that place. So when that gets triggered, oh boy. Now, who here regrets not following their gut instinct? It is the gift of the animal brain. The gift. Please pay attention. That sensing is an ancient wisdom that lets you know this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. Now, we can try to analyze all that, right? This is why this word brain gets shut down for survival. Because if your body's saying, get out of here, and this isn't shut down, what does this say? Go check it out? Right? This isn't going to scare me. I'm grown. I can handle this. I'll just suck it up some more. Right? I have benefits to keeping it this way. Let me check off all my benefits to keeping it this way, as opposed to just going, I'm getting out of here. You don't feel good at all. Goodbye. No. We start analyzing, and it keeps us stuck. This is what keeps us stuck. 
The analyzing, the judging, the criticizing, the trying to make sense out of everything. It's not working. What we need to do is feel better. We need to feel better. We're only going to do better when we feel better. How do we make that happen? The answer is sensory. It's no words. No words. And actually going sensory. Woo, this is a shift for education, isn't it? Remember when we went through this with students with autism? And we wanted our words to be the answer because we're so comfortable operating with our words. We want to be able to talk and reason. So we kept sending students with autism or any kind of pervasive developmental disorder, we would send them to, uh, you know, perspective-taking classes or social skills training, and we'd get them to look, you know, make the eye contact, make the eye contact. Eye contact is only the most arousing thing we could possibly do. I mean, who feels comfortable in an elevator? It's like, oh, okay, where are you looking at the ceiling? Right? But students with autism, look at me. This is how we kept their arousal up here. Right? So they could never, they weren't a learner. They weren't a learner. They weren't in the zone. Athletes call it the flow. It's the flow. So do business CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. They're all doing what we just did, that 60 seconds. They're all doing it. Nobody can deny it anymore. And people are excelling by, by going sensory and learning how to be in the optimum zone of arousal. Now we can take care of business and we can get it right the first time. So efficient. You lay the foundation for performance, achievement, learning, adaptive behavior. Lay the foundation, the physiological foundation for that to be possible and now we're in business. And, and it's easy. This is when the learner's in the flow and they're learning. This is when you're in the flow as a teacher and you're teaching, you're on fire. You know that feeling? I'm on fire. I got it today. That's because you're in your flow. There's a balance happening inside of you that is not a psychological construct. It is a physiological state that feels good. Our sole focus in education, and as parents, of course, is do I feel good? Whoa, another paradigm shift for us, right? What, I matter? What are you talking about? That's the first shift that has to happen. Do I feel good? Wow. I know, this is probably not what you were expecting today. <laughs> gotta give it to you though. I gotta give you the, the truth, the science. It, you know, we, we, um, the, the field of neuroscience is 150 years old. But for the first 130 years, right, we were just studying cadavers. Dead brains. There's only so much you can learn about dead brain. <laughs> we would, you know, cut the brain, you know, see are there lesions, are there abnormalities that will help explain why he was such a son of a gun when he was alive. Um, <laughs> so this is how we did it for so many years. Well, in the last, since 1990, the 90s was the decade of the brain. If you remember a little bit in the media, we had a little bit of it. It was the decade of the brain because we now had MRIs and other very sophisticated ways of looking at the brain and disproving a lot of what we once believed about how it functions. 
you know, let's, let's talk about when you think, for example, that the brain is fully developed. Yeah, yeah. Are you? You're cheating. Yes. Did I tell you that? Yes. Okay. So here's the here's the thing. When I started going to neuroscience conferences about about 15, 15 years ago now, maybe more. Okay. So when I started going first, um, they said 21. Do you remember when I said 21? It was out in the mainstream for a while. That by 21 we had a fully developed neuro ne- neocortex. Well, about eight years ago when I would go to the neuroscience conferences, they said 25. Who here's heard the 25 one? That's there. Yeah, that's a little common right now. If you go to neuroscience conferences now, which I do, now we're hearing 30. Do you see where we're going? See what's happening? Okay. So we're learning more and more about the brain and realizing when is it ever fully developed? The brain becomes more sophisticated with more experience. We only change the brain with experience. I certainly know that mine is working far better at 42 than it was when it was 38 even. I know, I completely experienced the difference. Now our memory is another story. We'll talk about memory later. That's just depressing. Um, but anyway, okay. So who here Oh, well, I'll tell, it, I'll tell it to you this way, actually. So I have an eight-year-old son, beautiful, beautiful boy, such a lucky girl. And um, he goes to a Waldorf school, because you can imagine, with everything I know about brain functioning and how this testing whole thing has gone down, and no child left behind, and RTI, I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking no. <laughs> you know, worked in the public school system for 21 years, but it's a no. Always thought he'd go. Oh, I had my favorite little public school all picked out for him. It was one that I worked in for 10 years. I loved it. I knew everybody. I totally, it was heartbreaking to say, I can't do it. I went and visited the kindergarten room. I thought, and um, I won't describe all the things I see. You know, we see it every day. So he's at a Waldorf school. Well, they asked me to buy a textbook that would explain its very different philosophy. And I did, and I had every intention of reading it as a lay person, as I know we all do as educators. It's a hard thing to do. Hard thing to not, you know, read that book as a teacher, right? So I had every intention of, uh, you know, doing that. And the whole first chapter was on brain development. And it was all wrong. It's all wrong. And the book wasn't even, I mean, it might have been five years old. And what that book said that was wrong is that when we are born, we're born with our brain. Now that's logical and linear. So see what see how this works? When you can only study a dead brain, our neocortex is not only rational and reasonable and human with all of its words and sophistication, it likes to know everything. And if it doesn't know something, it makes it up. Have you noticed? <laughs> we make up some really good stories. And if we tell them enough times, we actually believe they're true. Okay? This is what the neocortex does. Now, that... that um, Oh gosh, did I just lose my train of thought? This will happen sometimes. I will be asking the audience for help today. So there will be moments where I'm thinking, where 
was I? Okay, so I was just talking about the neocortex. I made a mistake. Oh, thank you. See, done. Thank you so much. This, this is going to be good today. <laughs> thank you, Ani. Okay, so the Waldorf School. See, if we're only studying dead brains, then what do we really know about how the brain develops? How it functions when, when we're alive and what it needs? There's no way to know that. That didn't start happening until we could take a, a baby, a baby, and on the first day of life, under an MRI, we can take a pregnant woman under the MRI and we see the developing brain, we see it responding to different stimulation, like stress, and we're learning now, and we're disproving all of these things we once made up and believed were true. So one of those things is that at birth, um, we have the whole brain online, active, and ready to go. And this is what was in the Waldorf book. So the Waldorf book said, at the end of the first trimester, we have our animal brain, ready to go. By the end of the second trimester, by the end of the third trimester, and voila, we are now in the world, <laughs> ready to go, active, got it all going on. No. The only part of the brain that is active, lit up, ready to go, is the sensory brain. The only exception to that is a small part of the auditory and a small part of the visual cortices because we can see and hear at birth, but not as well as we will, right? It's just a little bit, it's not so great. With experience, it becomes more sophisticated and better. So if all we have at birth, and this makes perfect sense to you, right, when you think about your babies, because what are we doing? How are we soothing a baby? This is highly essential to the day, because I know their bodies are bigger, Guess what's really going on? They're in their baby brain. They're in the brain that is sensory, that needs to be soothed, not with words. Words agitate that brain. Oh, words agitate this brain. Oh, oh, you've seen it. You see what your words are doing to that trauma vortex right in front of you. Here's a student, right? Here's your child. It's a trauma vortex. And you talking at that, that place is so sensory and it's so survival and it's so focused on all that stuff. This brain is shut down, right? This amygdala shuts that brain down and now we're talking at it. So here's this sensory brain and we're talking at it. We're talking at it. And this is what it's like, right? And they tell us, oh my gosh, one time my son, he's about six, and we're doing the morning routine. You know what the morning routine is like? I mean, is this H-E-L-L on earth or what? So the morning, <laughs> the morning routine. And we're trying to get out the door. And, you know, my son, because I made the mistake when he was a baby, of always telling him, oh, just take your time. We're in no rush, right? I wanted regulation. I wanted regulation. So I was always triggering his parasympathetic, right? Oh, we're not in a rush. Now we're in a rush, right? you got to get to school. So he ended up saying to me while I'm running around saying, did you finish your breakfast? Did you get to book it right? And I'm doing my thing. And he goes, mom, stop talking. <laughs> this is what he said to me. And then you know what he said to me? He goes, it hurts my brain. <laughs> I've never, he's never been in one of my lectures, okay? 
knows how to get your attention. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't he? Is that something? They're telling us all the time. I really need to tell you this other one because I got pulled into his trauma vortex the other morning. It was, you, you, you were on your way. And so there was this, you know, okay, I gotta get him to school, I gotta get back, I gotta start my work day. And, um, and um, I'm, there he is, right? He's feeling the stress of it. And so he goes to this place and I phew, popped right into that trauma vortex and we were going at it, right? I thought, oh my gosh, you know, where's my zone right now? Um, let me use my tools, let me get back in my zone. <laughs> Which I'm usually pretty good about, right? Because I've been doing this for so many years and I'm usually pretty good. This pulling into the trauma is happening less often, right? When you, you have this building up this reserve in your brain body. So anyway, I remembered something the other day came to me because I thought I got pulled in. I got pulled in. You know how you reflect on this sometimes. And I remembered a time when he was about four years old and he was in the bath. And he said to me, something had gone on, and he said to me, Mom, I know I started, but you, you get into it. He said, stop getting into it. He actually said, stop getting into it. Four years old. I know I started, but then you get into it. This didn't make any sense to this little four-year-old. He thought, okay, let me do my triggering and contain it, man. Like, get yourself together. Why are you letting me affect you? This is my gig over here. Wisdom. But that's how they come, right? They come with all this wisdom. Remember all the things they used to say? Oh, anyway. Okay, so we know now at birth that we have this, and so we need to shoo, you know, and, and coo, or, you know, whatever that is, shushing, and all of our sounds, right? And our, our skin, the feel of us, the smell of us is so important to our babies. All of this soothing stuff. Now, if you were to say to your baby that's crying in the crib, okay, you want to come in with your very nice words that make perfect sense to you. And so, of course, they're going to make perfect sense. This baby is born with the whole brain ready to go. And you open the door and you say, oh, baby, you'll be fine. I'll come and check on you in a minute. Bye. I'm back to my bottle of wine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so... Um, let's say, let's agree, that doesn't soothe the baby. Doesn't soothe the baby. Nice words, doesn't soothe the baby. It has to be sensory, that's what soothes the baby. And when we finally went sensory with our students with autism, remember? We, we were so uncomfortable with that because we don't speak the language. We're so up here now, right? We're so sophisticated with all of our words and reason. That you know, this idea of doing, what, sensory integration? What's that? What, that's weird, and how can it really be helping, and I don't get it, and I don't speak that language. And so we did all that other stuff until we finally said, all right. You know, now we're banging our head against the wall, not just the students with autism. And so we finally said, what is this sensory integration business? And now look where we've got. It's the same thing. It's the very same thing. That the brain of a student that is chronically stressed, and you can tell me, you know your students are chronically stressed, right? Do you get that? Okay, because you know you are, right? 
You know you are. And how do we know they are? Because they're showing us in every way possible. And they're asking for what they need all the time. I'll give you examples of the things that teachers share with me all the time. They say, oh, yeah, that must be why that student asked me to do that. But we poo-poo a lot of what? And, of course, the time constraints to everything, right? We're teaching bell to bell, bell to bell, bell to bell. So all of us, we are out of that zone where we need to be. And we need, as educators and parents, life is just busy, period, we need really quick tools that are effective quickly. And I love this meditation movement in schools. Great, yoga, cool, okay? But, you know, I ran the ED program at Long Beach Unified School District, and I will tell you, I'm not sitting around doing meditation or yoga. It ain't gonna happen. And this is the outgrowth of the tools that, that I offer you today, is my, my 21 years of doing this, and, you know, doing it, and studying the neuroscience at the same time, and marrying this, and making sure that we have quick, quick, quick stuff that shifts the brain from a no state into a yes state. We need the yes. We need the yes nervous system that goes, what would you like me to do? All right, I could try that. I'm curious, I'm interested, I'm motivated, I'm engaged, right? All of that happens in the zone. As opposed to, not doing one more thing for you, right? Or you, or you, or anybody. I want this, right? This nervous system that can't take one more thing in. I really want you to get... We're, we're labeling it oppositional defiant disorder. They've all got it. Oppositional defiant disorder. Well, Dr. Bruce Perry is out there. Do oops, oops, let's see, there we go. Dr. Bruce Perry, MD, PhD, beautiful, beautiful man that deserves every letter on the end of his name. He is everywhere really trying to educate us. This is not oppositional defiant disorder. This is a freeze in the nervous system. A freeze. I can't do one more thing. No flow, no zone, no yes, brain. It's a very different physiological state. So, hopefully I covered everything I need to cover here. We're just gonna keep moving. Uh, what do I wanna show you now? Okay. I wish this little thing worked better. So we got this. We get stuck on high when that amygdala is going, going, going. Here it is. See that little, that little amygdala there? Let me explain to you what happens to it when stress is chronic. There is an accumulation of stress on the nervous system over time. And that accumulation leads to what is called the kindling effect of the amygdala. It's the word kind, not so kind, with ling on the end. Um, the kindling effect of the amygdala is that eventually, see how it's supposed to happen is you break that branch and the amygdala goes da 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 You go into this sensory place and then hopefully a deer comes out or something. And you go, oh, okay, it was just a perception of threat. wasn't a real threat. The deer comes out. Your amygdala goes, da, 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 da. The 
parasympathetic branch of the nervous system comes on and we're back in kumbaya, okay? Back in the zone. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, how does it actually work in the lives, the real lives of our students and us? Is that when stress is chronic, the amygdala goes on, right? It goes on and it comes off and it goes on for another stress and it comes off and it goes on, right? Because there's another stress right around the corner, right around the corner and a stress comes on and the amygdala goes off and eventually the amygdala doesn't go off anymore. Like that cortisol that stays high and it just, if we can't get rid of it, it starts wreaking havoc on the entire brain body. And this is true because this amygdala eventually goes on and doesn't come off anymore. This is what the victims of bullying describe, and they have described it. If there's any kind of abuse going on in any way, verbal, you know, this antagonism, this yelling and screaming, or this, any of that stuff, any kind of bullying, the victims of bullying, they describe their experience thereafter as living in a constant state of fear. A constant state of fear. It's the, 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 and if you hook them up to a machine that could hear their brain, you'd hear it. It's at least 50% of our classrooms now are either zeroing or tenning. You got your sleepers, you got your, and you know who they are? The three, when that amygdala sends its message down to that sensory brain to go into survival, what are the three options for survival? Fight, flight, freeze. So when that branch breaks, this is what you do. Now, you may have grand, you know, grandiose, grandiose ideas, like a girlfriend of mine did. We used to live in Manhattan. We were, you know, tough girls and living the life on the streets of Manhattan. <laughs> it really wasn't like that. But, um, but she just, um, she just, she's tough. I mean, you know, we're both pretty tough. But she had this, you know, idea or this plan. Oh, just let somebody try to take my purse. Or just let somebody try to hold me up at the ATM. They'll see what they're going to get. Sadly, it happened to her. And she froze. So these big plans for what she was going to do in milliseconds got shut down. The amygdala sent a different message. And I'll tell you, in 21 years of working with the naughty boys of school districts everywhere, um, they have such grand plans for how they're going to stop this guy from ever touching their mother again for example. That was one I got often. They had plans for how this was going to stop and they were going to use their power, their big bodies, because let's face it, in our high schools, pretty big bodies, they don't decide. It's not a conscious choice. The amygdala sounds off and boom, you're in that place of either fight, flight, or freeze. And this is who we have in our classrooms. They're either fighting, fleeing, or freezing. That's who we're trying to teach. Our fighters, our fleers, and our freezers. And yes, do we have all kinds of names for that? Like ADHD, and maybe there's a pill. Depression, maybe there's a pill. Oh, they're bipolar. Look at them go up and down, zero tending. 
bipolar, cyclothymia. I mean, we've come up with every, I mean, we just have so many names for what? For, for serotonin. It's just arousal. Who here is a uh, crammer? Who crams? Okay. Now, we're not going to call you procrastinators, so that's not nice. Okay. So, you're a crammer. Now, a teacher did explain this to me once uh, at, at a seminar like this. And a crammer is someone who leaves everything to the last minute for a test. So let's say the test is on Monday, right? And my brother, who has a very different nervous system than I, would start studying on Sunday. He'd be out enjoying the weekend, right? Oh, the test? That's not until Monday. And this teacher explained that to me, that some nervous systems need to feel the rush, is what he said. I need to feel the rush. There's a surge of anxiety that comes for some people when they leave it at the left. Well, it comes for all of us. But for some people, that works. It bumps their nervous system into a more alert state, a more alert, focused state that allows them to do well. Now, me? No, no, no. I started two weeks ahead of that Monday, and I study a little bit every day. Little bit every day because I don't need any elevation, as you can see, in my baseline level anxiety. We don't need to be adding too much stress or pressure to this particular nervous system because when that happens, now you're seeing a zero tending Reggie, and um, and I do not do well on the test. Who's blanked on a test? Okay, now. When you, when you have that first experience, right, I started to say, okay, that's it. I can blank on a test. I'm going to know this stuff inside, out, upside, down, and all around. And I'm going to get in there. Our plans, we've got plans. And I'm going to get in there, and I'm, no matter what, I'm going to be able to pull this off. And then you blank on the exam. If you're a bad test taker, if there's something about that particular if there's something about that particular environment, right? Now's the time to take the test. Now's the time to prove that I can do this. I'm on. I need to be on. And that gives a pressure to some of us that it, it's too much pressure. Now, you not doing well on that test. Let's say, when I flunked that test, does that have anything to do with how intelligent we are? No. It doesn't even have anything to do with a, is it a learning disability? Right? Whoops. That's for special education. Right? Because it's the gift, the great gift of special education. Like, they're actually going to get something. What do they get? I don't know. Three years later, they're looking about the same to me. Um, so, um, it's, just, it's just another intervention that doesn't work. It's just more of the same. It's more words. It's more language. Work. We're not laying the necessary foundation for that intervention to work. Lay the foundation. Special education will start working. Okay? So, I don't know where I was going with that. Somewhere. Go on. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Anything important comes back. We're, we're just, this is about having fun today. We have to keep this stuff light. What we're doing is heavy business. It's a lot of stress and pressure. Our job is to feel better. That's your first job. Now, I know that's counter to all kinds of things. 
We're supposed to be self-sacrificial because somehow that's going to make things better. It's the opposite. We've got the neuroscience making it absolutely clear it doesn't work that way. We have to feel better ourselves. So we're going to keep this light, and we're not going to worry about whatever is said and comes in and questions come to your mind. It's everything that needs to be said and explored today. So, so when you talk about chronic stress, are yes. you tell us how to get out of that? Well, yeah, I did. I did. Oh, I did. So, so what I'm, 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 I'm that because right that's right and and it's going to come again okay yes so so what they are though thank you for the question because it gives me a chance to say generally that they're sensory tools and we're going to learn them we're going to learn sensory tools today that get us into the zone of optimum arousal and so this is right it doesn't have anything to do with how intelligent we are see it came back it doesn't have anything to do with learning disabilities us flunking that test it doesn't even have anything to do with how well we prepared, because I'll tell you, I was the best prepared in the room. It doesn't even have anything to do with whether or not we care about doing well. Right now, we've convinced ourselves, they don't care. Look at them. They don't care. They're not, they're not, they're not making an effort. Their work and study habits must be terrible. Let's see if they have a learning disability. You know, it's all of these reasons. It's none of those reasons. Yes, are there legitimate cases of ADHD and learning disabilities? Yes, just like there always have been in three to five percent of the childhood population. Now, according to neuroscientists like Gabor Maté, if you've ever seen him on CNN, um, a wonderful uh, person educating us, it fifty percent. 50% of our childhood population meets criteria for one disorder or another. Whether it's a learning disorder, a behavioral disorder, an emotional disorder, I'm telling you, 50% meet criteria. But is that what's going on? Do they have a lifelong disorder that has to be managed now the rest of their life with medication and therapy? Oh, no, absolutely not. This zero tenning is the natural response of our brain body. Natural. This is a natural response to unnatural levels of stress and pressure, to unnatural ways of living. <laughs> there is so much. It truly is planet trauma. It comes from every direction. As, as a parent, I thought, okay, I know everything there is about trauma. I'll prevent it all with my son. Do I control the universe? He was born with a rare blood disease. His life is trauma. I mean, we're in hospitals, we're doctors, blood transfusions, you know? It's awful. And thank goodness, right? Because there have been times where we, he, he knows all the sensory tools now, that's for sure. I catch him doing it. He initiates it himself. And I catch him doing it. It motivates me to join him, do it also. There's nothing more important or powerful than self-governance. The most terrifying experience that brings about the deepest levels of shame is when we can't control ourselves. We think we're afraid of death, I'll tell you. We are terrified of not being able to control ourselves. And these kids see themselves completely out of control. They're screaming at people they love. 
They're beating on, oh, I'll tell you about Lupe. Lupe strangling her best friend. I mean, really. This stuff doesn't make sense. So we can't be in our neocortex trying to make logical linear sense out of this. They're terrified when they're not in control. This is not their choice. They're doing it and then later going, what is wrong with me? I know not to do this. I know not to do this. I love this person. It's so shameful. And it's that shame state with Dr. which Dr. Bruce Perry really wants us to know is a physiological state. Shame is physiology. It's the depletion of all the good feeling neurochemistry. Depletion. Overridden by cortisol now. And I mean, I'm not too far off for how some of these kids walk around. Um, they want to disappear. They don't want to be here. They want to disappear. They're trying to disappear. You know, we've got our squirmers and they're under the chairs and they're under the tables. Why are their shoes off? Why are their shoes off? You know why? What if, oh, you weren't here for the 60 seconds. Their shoes are off because they can feel themselves a little bit more here, a little bit more grounded. They're a live wire right now. It's a live wire. It's all over the place. It's out of control. What do you have to do to a live wire? You have to. It's the only way it becomes useful again. We are useless. We are useless as a live wire, grounding. Yeah, which I'll show you. But yeah, it's, it's otherwise, we're zero typing all over the place. We're unpredictable, which makes us part of the terror and the drama and the stress. We're only predictable in that zone. Okay, let's see where I want it to go. This is good. So, um, and I know where I'm going. I have it right here. No worries. Um, but I do want to say, by the way, that 60 seconds is an RTI evidence-based intervention. It's terrible. Sometimes I leave my talks and I realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even tell them it was an RTI. Because we're still, are we in California still concerned with RTI? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm all over the place. It's different in every state and province, so I, I never know what's going on. What's um, with with each audience. Um, so, yes, response to intervention. So that's an educational thing you don't, yeah, yeah. We get to let some stuff go today, which is great. Um, so this is RTI. This is out of the cognitive behavioral world. It's called self-management. These sensory tools bring about self-management, greater governance over the self. And when that happens, you are allowing that student to feel safe in a way that they've never felt safe before if they haven't had self-governance. It's safety, it creates safety. Now we all know, we've been to plenty of seminars, I'm sure, where we know we have to create safety. If the brain doesn't feel safe, it's not learning. So we're creating safety by, what are, how are we creating safety? Barring up our schools, this is supposed to create greater safety, no. If I'm in here with my amygdala going like this, it doesn't matter what you're doing out there. And this is what we've gotten too far off the track with, are external resources to help our students. Things that are external to them. 
a counselor, a therapist, a, a, a karate class, a, you know, a big sister, a big brother. It's not that these things aren't great and don't work. What happens to them? Bye-bye. Funding ends. The kid can't, can't afford the transportation anymore. The, you know, the waiting list. Oh, my gosh, the waiting list and the waiting list and the waiting list. They finally get it. And then, you know, the big sister moves to another city or something, and they don't have their big sister anymore. And we actually, in some ways, re-traumatize. Because now they've had something, and it's gone. Anything external, anything external to them is temporary and has the power to do the opposite of what you want it to do. I'm not saying don't do those things for your students, but if, if you've got five extra minutes to help this student and that's all you've got, do not spend it on a telephone, waiting online, waiting and waiting, you're put on hold at, at you know the guidance center or whatever it is. Don't spend your time that way. We have little, little, little time. We want it spent here. How's my time? Are you here because it's time? I'm okay. How many minutes do I have? No, somebody. Two. Okay, I'm going to use them. I'm going to use the two minutes. Okay. So this internal thing here is what, of course, helps us to feel safer inside, internally, as opposed to the external, which we'll talk about a little more later, don't need to do right now. Here's another RTI evidence-based approach that, that I mean, is evidence-based and called that because we've collected and collected and collected, and this one actually works. And it will be explained here by this use-dependent way that the brain functions and develops. So I said, right, that the brain changes in response to experience. If you're not having an experience, you're not creating neural pathways for that to be possible. So think of all the things we expect the bigger bodies to be able to do. So we get to middle school, bigger body. Logical and linear, all right, they're ready. Bigger body, they certainly talk like they know everything that's going on, that's for sure. Um, but we're asking these middle school kids to be organized. You know, they gotta have their folder going with all their different subjects. They gotta go around to all their different rooms and have all their different teachers and know how to respond differently to this one and know where all their stuff is and make sure it's all there and add all the homework on top of that, which is another story that I might have time to cover. But this, this bigger body, in fact, right, we know now that that stress that gets conjured is really what's developing all the neural pathways. If they haven't had the experience over and over and over again, now maybe by the end of middle school, and this is why we put them through it, some of them might actually learn how to do that stuff for high school. The truth is, is that when we do it before the brain body is ready and capable, all it does is stress out the brain body. And then that stress starts to break things down, as you've seen. Then we're left with more and more students who aren't learners. They just, somebody tried to get them to be, but it was before they were ready, cognitively. Because remember, this is developing over time. So, I want you to see my fingers as neurons, little brain cells. When you give your student or child an experience, neurons for that experience start firing. And those neurons find each other and they form a neural pathway. 
Now, at first, that neural pathway is weak or tenuous, right? So you've shown them how to get their binder organized, let's say. And you show them a few times, right? And you show them a few more times. Okay. Now, if you stop showing while this neural pathway is weak or tenuous, and then they're sitting there going, okay, now they're getting confused and they can't remember one little part of it and it throws the whole thing off, this neural pathway goes, bye-bye. experience over and over and over and over again. I need chances to practice what this thing is that you want me to do now. You got to show me. You got to give me a chance to practice it over and over and over again until these neural pathways become really strong and deeply embedded in the brain structure. Then the behavior becomes automatic, like when you drive home after work and you have no idea how you got there. <laughs> That's why. So a behavior you engage in over and over and over again. Now, it doesn't matter if this behavior is yelling and screaming, if this behavior is, you know, smoking a cigarette or going to the gym, reading a really, you know, reading before you go to bed. It doesn't matter what your behavior is. The more you engage in the behavior, the stronger that neural pathway and the more deeply embedded in the brain structure. Now, the RTI invention, uh, intervention is, is, you've heard of it, I'm sure, DRO is called, it's differential reinforcement of other behavior. Differential reinforcement of other behavior. And I know, I'm sensitive to the time and I want you to have a break. So we're gonna, I'm gonna explain what DRO is and how it's related to the way the brain develops in a use-dependent fashion. Differential reinforcement of other behavior. Okay, we're gonna talk about that, but have a break. Have a break, this is a lot. Have a break. I'm going to put our picture back up and we're going to allow it to soothe. Here, here's the stuff. So people were asking what this is all about. Okay, here's a documentary. This documentary is the work in action in a K-8 school. So if you need to see it you know, come to life, how one particular school is doing it. I'm not attached to what this ends up looking like. If we're using fewer words and we're going sensory and we're teaching this tool, um, they call it a breathing break in here. See, I don't care if they call it a breathing break. They don't have to call it 60 seconds. They do it for three minutes over the intercom. I would never be so bold as to say to you, you know, go back to your school and do a three-minute breathing break uh, over the intercom. No. Um, but this is what this principal, this principal and one of his teachers saw me at a talk Back when I didn't even have a curriculum, I just had a couple of books. They bought those couple of books and went back to their school, and he said, if I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And that principal had his whole school change the entire program, and that's what comes to life here in this documentary. Okay, so that's here. Um, that, it's $49. Very, very expensive to make this. Um, so that's $49. But I have stuff for $5. So, you know, I have parent guides. If you don't know how to, you know, right now parents are not our allies, but I have to tell you, and I shouldn't say that so general, you know, so generally, it is a generalization, um, but when they learn this, when they hear some of this, and there's great ways to condense it, and I do all of that in my curriculum, but, you know, all of a sudden they say, nobody's ever told me this before. Why haven't I heard this before? Now you're talking. And you're not just talking about my kids, you're talking about me. And they really 
get it in a way. This is not the behavior discipline conversation, right? You call them in, you talk about the behavior, what's the discipline, you write it out, sign what they did, what are they going to do differently next time, blah, blah. It does work. And this is what we're doing over and over again. This is the different conversation, it's the different tool, it's the one that's working. So it's in Spanish and English, and those are $5 each. This is, this is really the book. Um, it's the very first one I wrote. It's based on all the work I did at Long Beach Unified, School District Santa Ana Unified, so all the different school districts I was in in Orange County. Um, and I talk about you know what, what's going on with our students today. I explain a little bit of the neuroscience behind it, and there's seven chapters out of 12 with all the different tools and resources and the ways that we, we were different. We just, and there was, and nothing existed. This is still the only um, book of its kind. There are books that are relating brain-based stuff to learning, and even trying to help understand some behaviors, but not with these educational tools that are, right? We're learning a lot that it's meditation, and it's yoga, and it's sensory balls, and all these things that are external to the students. We're not taking a look at how we can quickly change the um, nervous system in the brain uh, on their own, how students can learn to do that on their own. It's, it's getting there, though. But this uh, particular book really takes it into classrooms in a way that, that hasn't happened. So that's called Why Students Underachieve, and it's $29. I have a $15 book for parents, You Can Heal Your Child, a guide for parents of misdiagnosed, stressed, traumatized, and otherwise misunderstood children that's what they are. We're diagnosing them. We're putting them on medication. It's not the way to go. So this is all here. The curriculum has everything you could possibly need. This activities book, it's only $15, is full of how do we go sensory and all the activities that are in there. Sensory, sensory, sensory activities that bring them into the zone, that help them to feel good so now we can get on with the business of, of learning. And this is new and improved in the curriculum. So the entire activities book is in the curriculum new and improved. And um, the curriculum is K to 12. We are adapting it right now for Head Start. They've asked us to do that. Um, it's called Brain Charge Sensory Awareness for Student Achievement. And it's really fun to hear the kids now all over the place. They'll say things to their teachers like, is it time to charge our brain? Let's get our brain ready. Is our brain ready? I don't know. And they're teaching it to substitutes. It's so fun to go into these schools. I, I, you know, on the airplanes, get into these schools in different places. And, you know, to get there, the reward always is the kids coming up and saying, you know, I feel like I can do anything. When I do the 60 seconds, I feel like I can do anything. When I do the 60 seconds, a little boy who had just been evicted, his whole family had just been evicted out of their apartment, and he said that day, when I do the 60 seconds, I feel like all my problems go away. I couldn't believe it. And the teacher told me later, you know, for that boy to say that is so huge. They had just been evicted from their apartment. Anyway, that, those are the kudos for me. That gets me to keep doing this with some gusto. So if you want the K-12 curriculum, it's full of scripts for exactly what to say and how to say it, um, all the tools for how to go sensory and get into the zone, everything else. And it's good for us, it's good for them. Okay, done. So you've got that. I do want to tell you, you know, this focus that I have on self-regulation is because we know it's the single most important 
foundation for all of learning and adaptive behavior. And this study it is uh, from 2010. 2010. Oh no, look at me. I'm need my glasses soon. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Okay, so yeah, maybe this. Oh no, I don't want to. I see, I don't want to do that because then my neural pathways. When you become a grandma, you can Okay. Okay. So I want you to know in this longitudinal, governmentally funded study, longitudinal, so it went on for years, it started in 2001, we are continuing to collect data, and in 2011, we learned that kindergartners with a positive, this is what they're calling it, a positive learning approach. What does that mean? It means they have emotional regulation that gives them persistence, attentiveness, organization, and flexibility. And kindergartners who possessed this capacity made more progress in math and reading through to the end of the fifth grade. And then we're following them, so we'll know how they do at the end of eighth, and we'll know how they do at the end of high school. But it's the regulation piece. We're now realizing that the cognitive hypothesis that we had in the 90s, do more, do it sooner, do it longer, pile it all on, more doesn't equal more. <clears throat> what we've learned is that more equals shutdown. So now we're in 2013 with the wisdom of having done it that way. Let's start earlier, right? Babies can read. Have you seen that commercial? Oh, this stuff is scary, scary, scary stuff. You know, that's when we get those gut instincts, right? We think we're looking at that baby reading going, this can't be good. This, this cannot be good. And it's not, okay? Babies are sensory. When you try to cram words into a sensory brain, you elevate cortisol, and that interferes with everything. So now, what we're talking about in like Scott Tuff's book, I believe his name is Scott, it might be Paul, but his last name is Tuff, like I'm tough, and he just wrote How Children Succeed. And he exposed this cognitive hypothesis, and now showing that all the research, all those kit programs, why were they successful, why were the kids dropping out of college? These cognitive approaches that start earlier and pile on more and do it longer, they get to college and they drop out because now they don't have the external stuff regulating them. It was that KIPP program that kept them regulated. You know, the pep talks and the, and the you know the mentors and the big brothers and the, all of that stuff was great. It got them through and got them into college. But then they got to college, they still didn't have self-regulation. It was all coming at them from the outside. We need to change them from the inside. And we can only do that by having more and more experiences. So, why is that? Now we know. There is a use-dependent way. What you don't use in the brain, you lose. Okay, we realize that. Oh, such a drag. What we are using in the brain, uh, what wires together, what fires together, wires together. So the neurons fire for that behavior, they find each other, and now we have a wiring, neural wiring for that to become more and more possible and more and more automatic. Now how long does it take to get here? 21 days. It's really between 21 and 28 is, is what the neuroscience shows us. And it does not have to be consecutive. If you were to do this 60 seconds every other day and the kids come to anticipate, oh, what, are we doing that, right? I, and I think I forgot to just say that they're teaching their substitute teachers 
This is something else that the teachers emailed me about to say, I was absent yesterday, and I find out later that the substitute teacher was educated by the kids. How did you get 60 seconds? Because they didn't want to miss their brain charge time. They knew they needed to get their, their themselves grounded and ready for it to be easier for them to do what they were being asked to do. Oh, it's so exciting. It really does. Like, I've got little goosebumps. It just feels so nice. Because here's what we've been doing for a long time. Calm down. Relax. Chill out. Get it together, would you? And it will even say, we think time out, right? All right, go, walk around the track. Go, calm down and get it together. And they go with their amygdala. Okay, sounds good. And they're walking around the track with their Kindle amygdala. Walking around the track, right? And then they come back in and we wonder why two minutes later, two minutes later, and we say, kid, you just had your time out. Why didn't you calm down? Why don't you think he calmed down? We've never taught him how. That's it. Never taught him how. And they're going, that sounds really great. How do you do that? How do you do that? Now, we might not be teaching him because we don't know how. That might be why we're not teaching him. <laughs> we can only teach them what we know. And maybe in our life, we don't know how to calm down. We've got that racing going on inside us. And we've got that inside us. And we don't know how to do this. Then we can't pass it on at all. So we've got to be the ones doing this for us. Let's do it, shall we? Yes. I got the four in the front set. Yes, what is this business? Okay. So please, just for now, we'll get back to our are doing, we'll get back to all the doing, the doing, doing that feels so urgent. Has to happen now, has to happen now. Um, <laughs> we are gonna go to that place that feels a little less urgent, um, that's more about how am I being, because that's what's getting soaked up like a sponge. So here we go, how am I being? Let's uncross our legs, put our feet flat on the ground. <laughs> Now, doesn't that already just feel a little bit better? Instantan no, that's fine. Instantaneously. I love the tough ones are my favorites. Um, this is why that nurse, if that nurse isn't telling you to do this, please start doing it for yourself. Feet uncrossed, flat on the ground, instantaneously lowers blood pressure. Why? This obstructs the blood from flowing to all the places it needs to flow unobstruct, and you've got your flow. Breathe in through your nose. I'll explain all of this. But right now, just take in the support of that chair, would you? This is changing these test-taking results for these kids, that they're noticing support right there in the moment that they're in. We want support to come from people. How's it going? For a lot of these kids, it's not great. Because the people we want support from are just as stressed out as we are. <laughs> <laughs> so let's feel those feet on the ground. Let's look at the picture of nature. 
teachers, pictures of nature are in rooms now everywhere. It makes a tremendous difference. And just notice what begins to happen. You might notice places that are still tight or tense. It's okay. You've got both going on at the same time. You can choose to focus on the spot that feels a little more grounded, a little less stressed. And if you wire your brain to begin to focus on what feels good instead of focusing on what's wrong, you change everything, you change everything. But it's a rewiring, okay? We have a negative bias. We are hardwired to focus on the negative because that's how we survive situations. If I'm prepared for the worst case scenario, I'm gonna be alive. So we have this negative bias that's getting in the way now. It served us in the, you know, in the jungle and in the caveman times, but now it's getting in the way. We've got to begin to rewire. And so we learn to focus on, can I feel my feet on the ground? Am I breathing in through my nose? Am I taking in the support that's right here for me right now? Instead of focusing on, he never called me back. <laughs> or whatever we focus on. <laughs> okay. How would you describe it? Can I have a few description words from you about what you're noticing inside? Because this is the most important thing to ask your students and your children. What are you noticing now inside? You noticed getting more relaxed earlier. Calm. 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 Oh. Calm. Doesn't it feel priceless? I mean, it's worth so much more than all the money in the world. Now, if you're noticing thoughts are coming in, right, and thoughts are that place that, you know, fires back up that amygdala, it's okay. Thoughts are cues that say, oh, there I am in thought again. Can I feel my feet on the ground? Am I noticing the support of the chair? Am I breathing in through my nose? Every time we interrupt a thought and we focus instead on a sensory experience that's more soothing, you see what happens? We start weakening those thoughts, those nerves, there's something wrong, or I gotta do this and I gotta do it now. When am I ever gonna be good enough? I need to be, this needs to be perfect. You know, all that stuff. We very, we start unwiring that stuff. It's called neural pruning. So remember, what fires together wires together. If you start to focus more on the sensory experience, that allows you to be right here, right now, noticing some support, feeling a little bit better. And those neural pathways get stronger, they become more automatic over time, and then before you know it, you're walking down the hall feeling your feet on the ground. Now I guarantee you that th those 50% of your classrooms that have that kindled amygdala, they will tell you they don't feel their feet on the ground. They're up and out. They'll describe their experience as floaty, not really here, spacey, you see them. <laughs> There's here, all right there. There might even be some girl coming out. Very sad situation. But look at them. Their mouth is always open. Right? They're either, or they're like, right? What is that mouth always open? 
They're breathing in and out of their mouth because they're in fight or flight. This is how we breathe when we're in fight or flight. And that sends a message to the brain. Oh my God, there's really something wrong. You see how it's a two-way street. The amygdala is causing the breath to go in and out, but the in and out breath is sending a message back to the brain that affirms, oh yeah, we're in trouble. (laughs) We can rewire that. We can rewire that. We can show them. It's so fun. They have no idea. They don't know. We have to bring awareness to this and to show them and allow for them to practice and learn how to breathe through their nose. Now, as they do that more and more and more, it'll become more automatic, and now they're just breathing in and out of their nose all the time when they're trying to fall asleep at night. They're not sleeping. Why? Because they go to the bed, and they lie on it, and they go, okay, i got to fall asleep. (laughs) Time to fall asleep. (laughs) This is not where I have to actually sit down. See that? I'm telling you. It's, it's a spacey, out-of-body, scary place to be breathing out of your mouth. It keeps the sympathetic high. And so you are not present for learning in any way. You're not noticing the support of your bed. You are not giving your brain a message of, there's nothing wrong right now, everything's okay. When you send the, the, the air in, through the nose, and better still, when you can teach them to breathe that oxygen into their belly. There are nerve endings that line the stomach when oxygen gets into the stomach and tickles those nerve endings. It causes a deep, deep, deep parasympathetic response. And that brings us more into the four, five, six, seven. Now, we knew that deep breaths were important, right, to education, doing well on the test. So we've said to get, okay, we're about to have a test. I want everybody to take five deep breaths. And 50% of your room goes, okay. (laughs) And then they're supposed to take the test. I have to sit down again. (laughs) No kidding. That is the live wire, and it has to be grounded. I would be completely useless if I ignored what was happening in my body right now. Seriously, you know how we plow through and ignore? So my heart is pounding. I'm tight in my throat. I'm tight in my chest. My stomach feels sick. That's exactly what's happening inside of me right now from doing that. again. Okay, sorry about that. You know, it's normally not gotten that bad before. I mean, I, I, you know, I do this a lot. That was a, that was a big out. I was just really out. Okay, so we've done the 60 seconds. What did any of you notice? Did you notice anything at all? The beginning of, and as I'm asking you, please notice your feet on the ground right now. See, this is what I love. Yeah, see, this is what I love about this. You can be anywhere at any time doing anything else you're doing. Don't stop writing that email. Write the email and there we go, got my sign. She just yawned. 
Perfect. So now we know that your brain body just shifted out of the bracing and the, okay, I'm here, what do I need to learn, right? Let's do it, let's do it, okay? What time is it, right? That's sympathetic. And just by noticing the few things that you noticed in the seconds that you did, your brain body shifted out of sympathetic into parasympathetic. That's what we need to be doing for our students and our children over and over again, for us first, over and over again. So let me keep explaining a little bit about what we're doing and why. Okay. Oh, I want to finish on DRO, remember? Hey, look at me. (laughs) Makes me feel so young when I come back. You know, you go off on these tangents and then you can't get back. I got back on my own. I'm so excited. Um, DRO is an example. Differential reinforcement of other behavior is an example of unwiring. So that's neural pruning. When you stop doing a behavior, the neurons for that behavior stop firing. When they stop firing, neural pathways die off, and now they're actually, uh, a lot of times, patches in our brain. You can see where all the little dendrites aren't anymore. So when we stop a behavior, we lose neural pathways for it, and then it becomes harder to ever, you know, sometimes we'll look back on things and think, I can't believe I ever did that, because we just don't do it anymore. We couldn't imagine doing it anymore. That's because we, when we cessate a behavior, this is what you do with differential reinforcement of other behavior. What you're doing is not just ignoring what you don't want. We've all heard that. We don't attend to it because it makes it bigger. They love our attention. They'll take our attention for anything. So if we give that attention, it gets, okay? That is part of DRO. But if we're just ignoring what we don't like to see, does it change the behavior? It doesn't work to ignore. We've got the piece of not to pay attention. But the piece we have to add is paying attention to what we want to see. We've heard this. They have to be in combination. Because when they see what they're getting your attention for, and you're explicit about it, and you say, sitting up straight, love it. Right? Whatever it is then you've, that creates an awareness in them. It actually gives them a little bing of dopamine, bing of serotonin. This is what it gives them. It changes their neurochemistry for you to do that, and then they go bing, and it creates this attention, and they focus and say, okay. And now you're ignoring the other stuff. What they're getting the bing for that feels so good is this other behavior over here. Now, every time you do the ping, however you're going to do it, with your smile or your excitement or a pat or a, you know, however you're going to do it. And high schoolers want their stickers, by the way. I don't know if we have any high school teachers in here. They're so funny. You know, I'd say to them, okay, well, you know, we're going to, I'm thinking about stickers sometimes. What do you think? This was back in my, this was a while ago now. Um, I do it differently now. But when I was doing the stickers, and they'd say, oh, stickers. I'm not in kindergarten. I don't need your stickers, right? And I'd say, oh, well, we're just going to have an experiment. Everything with me, I tell them, oh, we're going to have an experiment, see how it goes, right? So we had the experiment. Well, you should see on the days I forgot to do the stickers. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, Where's my sticker? I thought I was getting a sticker. Never mind, but, you know, I'd like it, right? That sort of thing. <laughs> not important, but, you know, if you have one, I'd like it. 
<laughs> Babies. Bigger bodies, half brains. <laughs> half a brain. Crazy. Half a brain. It's scary. It is scary, isn't it? Especially when we didn't know that before. And we're operating with them and at them as though they got the whole thing going on. Not only, like how far away from 30? Let's say it's 30 when, we're, when our, our neocortex is fully developed or 40 when our neocortex is fully developed. How far away is 18 or 17 from 30? That's a long way off. That's a long, long way off. That's, that's barely halfway there. That's a half brain. I got my sensory brain that's soaking everything up. I got my feeling brain that's really ticked at you. But I don't have this capacity for you to explain why you just yelled at me. I don't care why. They don't care. Their reasoning isn't there. It makes perfect sense to you. And you think if it makes perfect sense to them, we're going to get somewhere. All right. We get this. Sorry. Sometimes I feel like I really want to drive a point home, and I don't need to be quite as enthusiastic as I am. Anyway, okay, so use dependent. You got that now? With DRO, you're attending to the thing, and then they start doing it more. Now you've wired that in. And you're ignoring this, so they're going, well, I'm not getting anything for this. Forget it. And they stop engaging in it, and then it's neurally pruned. This DRO approach is an RTI evidence-based approach that is based on sound neuroscience of how the brain works, how it gets rewired. Now, hierarchical, we've already covered. You understand that this brain is developing from birth, from a primitive place. We're quite primitive as babies. We just, all we really experience as babies is distress, change my diaper, and... Relief. Thank you for changing my diaper. In the, in the science, they call that contentment. Infants experience distress. I'm starving. Feed me. And we feed them, and they experience contentment. Then they need to be burped, and we burp them. Then, now do you see what's happening? Does that look a little like self-regulation? They experience their distress, and we soothe them in a sensory way. And when we soothe them in a sensory way, it triggers their parasympathetic branch of the nervous system. It depends on us, you see. The parasympathetic branch of the nervous system is not fully developed in us until we're three years of age. So leaving the baby in the crib to cry and pass out is the beginning of zero tenning. It's the protest, the distress, the distress, come and help me, come and help me, come and help me. And we're like, I'm exhausted. That kid is going to put himself to sleep. I'm done. Right? Which I understand. We didn't know any of this before. The most exciting part of this information from the neuroscience is the brain's neuroplasticity. We can change and heal the brain until we die. Do not start going, oh my God, I left my baby in the crib. Okay? <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. Just feel your chair. Go back to <laughs> Go back to that sensory place. <laughs> Unwire the thought. Go sensory. Because when you do, you're free. Believe me, it's freedom. It's freedom. It's such a joyful way to live, I don't even know how to tell you. So, we don't do that. Because that's the beginning of zero tending. What we do is we respond in a, a healthy way. And then, by the end of the third year of life, they've got this going. 
not in many cases, right? Not, um, but not too late. Now, here's what we let, let's talk about more that we have uh, disproved as far as our theories go. We used to believe in critical periods. It has to happen right now, and it has to happen with this particular person in this particular way. And if it doesn't happen, it's too late. That critical period. No. Our critical periods have become sensitive periods. And guess what? We're alive. We're in sensitive periods. That nature-nurture debate. What is it? Is it genetic? Is it the environment? How are genes triggered to come to manifestation? Stress from the environment. It's all, it's all nurture, nurture, nurture. If all we're born with is this little primitive part of the brain and all it feels is distress and contentment, that's it? There's a hierarchical development to the brain over time in response to experience. So the baby comes out and all it can do is, is, is what, it, what we talked about, distress and contentment. Then it, then it becomes a more social baby. At about three months, it's starting to feel all kinds of different things and expressing it and showing us because this limbic feeling brain is developing in response to the experience with the environment. And then by eight months, we, we're stringing, we're babbling. By a year, we're, we're talking one word maybe, like single words. By two, we're, we're stringing a couple together. You see, it's all becoming more and more sophisticated with experience. Nurture, 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 nurture. And what we now know is it doesn't have to come from mommy, and it doesn't have to come from daddy. It can come. You can. Of course, they're a beautiful thing. Don't hear me say or undervalue in any way what parents do. What we need to understand is that if it doesn't, it can. All that we need to do is give them an experience of feeling better and wire that in, and they will begin to do better. Is this perfection? Are we heading to perfection? No. What we're heading to is a nervous system that becomes more regulated so that the upsets happen less frequently. It takes a lot more to get that nervous system upset. And so it happens less often. And even when it happens, it happens less intensely. There's something still there that's still kicking in that's reducing the level of intensity. So there may still be an upset every now and then, or you know, it, you're going to see that the stronger and stronger that these neural pathways get built in, and the more automatic this self-regulatory capacity becomes, the fewer upsets there will be, the less intense there will be, and of course that means the less damage that will get done. And then the repair is so much easier after because you didn't completely lose it. That's what begins to happen to the nervous system over time when we're being consistent about this over time. Okay. Moving on. Let's see what we got. Oh, dear. The three primary purposes of the brain are not reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> it's, always, it's always the bad news. I can't even tell you how far away <laughs> from the interest of the brain at all these things are until safety, safety, safety is insured. Once safety is insured, and it's all relative, isn't it? But the best that we can do, once that happens, now remember the most important way to create safety. 
It's inside of them. They have to start to feel like they know how to control themselves. A lot of them are terrified of themselves. So this is what needs to change so that all that good stuff is possible. We covered this. We covered this, really, that's zero tenning. We're doing great, oh, there it is, oh, yuck. Stuck on high due to that kindling effect. And of course, these are all the things that they're doing, right? And I just got a, a, a call yesterday for another um, young teenager, she's 13, who just started cutting. She, it's, it's this, it's terrible. Started as she was picking, and you'd see her a lot, really anxiously picking, picking, picking. And then the picking turned into a pin, and now the pin has become scissors. And it's just this spot, that's all it is, but there it is. So our anxiety is evident in so many different ways, this zero tending pattern, the amygdala kindling. And we don't know if they're doing it privately in the closet and they got it all together in front of you. We don't know, we don't know. What we do know is that this is essential for everybody. You might be thinking about your zero tenors right now and going, okay, yeah, I have a few people like this might be good for. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is for everybody in that room, especially you, <laughs> right? Because we have to be in that good feeling place. It's for everybody. They, you know, maybe half your class or more are really hanging in there. They look like they've got self-regulation. They're doing pretty good, okay? And then what about next year? And the year after that and the year after that. I always see these kindergartners um, that say, oh, I, oh, yeah, I want my homework packet. How ridiculous is this? Anyway, I want my homework packet. And the people who really want to do this homework testing thing in kindergarten, they say, look, they'll pick out the few, you know, that go, yeah, I want my homework. You know, okay, give me more. I can take that test. I'm really great. And they have this you know, bravado, why? Because they have older brothers and sisters and they want to be just like them. And they think it's a game. They think it's a game that they can stop playing, right? They don't know what we know. <laughs> it never ends. No. They don't know that. They think they're going to wake up one day and go, all right, you know what, that, that testing thing, I don't really like it anymore. <laughs> Too bad. We're on the treadmill. Here we go. So this is, this is it. And, for some hang in there. We have something called third grade burnout now. Third grade burnout. Third grade teachers everywhere tell me they see it on the first day of third grade. On the first day of third grade, they see the lights that are out. You know, you've seen them. You know the ones where the lights are out. Some hang into third grade, some we don't see it until later. Our high school dropout rates are higher than ever. Our teenage suicide rates, I mean, we have suicides as young as eight happening too often. This is very, very real. Now, even when they take all their AP classes and they do really right, captain of the football team and off they go to Harvard, if you read you know, the, the paper sometimes, you'll learn about what's happening at Harvard. They're hanging themselves in the closet there. Because what, they, what happens is there's an accumulation of this stuff on the nervous system over time. And if we don't equip them with tools that allows that self-regulatory capacity to be as tolerant as it can be, then there's a straw that breaks the nervous system's back. <coughs> That's just what happens. So this is for everybody. 
because they gotta go next year? Who here is interested in getting their students through to the end of the marathon that education is? Right now, we're getting them through the sprint. Okay, let's just get them through the test. That'll be good. Let's just get them through this semester. Let's just get them the next year, right? If we do that, then next year, somebody else can worry about this kid. <laughs> Let me get them through. Let me get them through. Well, the sprint is not paying off for us, is it? This is a marathon. This is about equipping our students with what they need to complete the marathon of education all the way and certainly of life because you can't be in a healthy relationship without self-regulation. You can't raise your children well without uh, self-regulation. So you see how this is a life skill that has to get started, right? Self-regulation in kindergarten leads to higher math and reading achievement through to the end of fifth grade. And we're gonna see what else happens by the end of eighth. So there we have it. These are all the behaviors, right? that they're engaging in, some of them quite scary and sad, but that's how they're trying to manage their anxiety. So here's what, and, and of course with learning, it looks like they have learning disabilities, but please understand, this is how much they care. The fact that they're learning how to starve themselves and, and barf and all these horrible things that they're doing to themselves, you know, sexually, crazy behavior, you know, the ways that they're trying to not feel this, not feel this, not feel this, right? We, if we don't get to them early enough, if we're not showing them the healthy way that they can develop governance over themselves, then what happens later is they're walking around like this, right? Out on the track trying to calm down. <laughs> and somebody sees them and says, hey, I don't know how to help you with that. Let me show you how. You know? And then they go, honestly, it's like nectar from the gods. It's, it feels like nectar from the gods, those experiences that finally make them go Now, they're not really there. They're not really present anymore. This is what uh, one of my teenagers at Focus High School up in Canada said to me. Um, he said, man, I'm doing this thing all the time. He says, I do it every day, I do it every day. I can't believe it. He said, I don't have to get so messed up. I'm not getting this messed up. He said, I have a kid on the way. I don't want to be so messed up. Young teenager. But he had a baby coming. His girlfriend was pregnant. And he was completely stressed about all of it. And he was, you know, getting what he called messed up with marijuana. And he was so excited to see me again to let me know that what I had taught him, he was using every day, and he was not getting, he was having such hope to be able to raise this little baby. They're, they're terrified of how dangerous they are to the planet and to the people around them. Believe me, that's in there. And this gave him that greater sense of safety for himself. Okay. So they care, they're trying to get into that zone and they will get into that zone in any way they possibly can no matter how unhealthy it is. They're willing to pay the price for the relief. But we can give them the relief and it's physiological, okay? So, now I'm going to go over the most important resources that get our students into the zone. <coughs> Now, 
I want you to imagine a picture of the scales of justice, or injustice, depending on how you look at it. Um, so here are the scales. And I want you to imagine that way down onto one side are all the things that we're all dealing with, okay? Here it is. Stress, trauma, pressure, the too much, too soon, too fast of education, all of that. And know that how much can we do about this? This is life right here. This is planet trauma right here. You cannot eliminate. Now, you can reduce. I highly recommend if you can change your life in ways that reduce the level of stress for you and for them, of course. But what I want you to know for these students is, because people will say, well, they go home to this miserable home life. What could I possibly do in the few hours that I have them? The brain does so much. It soaks up every experience it's having. And it's biologically driven to want the ones that bring the relief and feel better. This is a biological drive because our brain knows when I thrive, I survive. When I feel well, I do well. And that means I continue living. So that biology, that DNA drives us to get the relief in healthy ways. How do we know this is true for your students? What's your name? Veronica. Miss Veronica? Miss Veronica, could I stay after school and help you with them? Maybe I could take down that stuff from the walls. Didn't you say you wanted that stuff taken down from the walls? Or maybe I could come early tomorrow. Would that be okay, Miss Veronica? And you're going, oh, thank you for that. But you're, you know, sometimes you're thinking, uh, go away! Get off me, kid! Go make a friend, right? And that kid's saying, you're my friend. You're my life. It's you. I feel good with you. I don't want, don't send me out there. Don't send me out there. I want to be with you. That's how badly they want the relief. These little buggers never miss a day of school. It's like, could you please just be a little sick? I don't want you to be on your deathbed, but could you please be sick for a day? I need a break. No, they're there every day. Hi, Miss Veronica. I'm going to do for you. This is how we know they're biologically driven. Do you see? They're trying to get it. They're asking us and telling us all the time. My favorite resource here, if we pile them on to the other side, we get balance. Don't worry about this, please. We can't eliminate their stress. We can't change their family life. We can't, listen, we can change what we can change. Guess what that is? The brain by giving it healthy, healthy, yummy, yummy experiences that give them their self-regulation. Trigger that parasympathetic over and over and over again. Here's one of my favorite ways that we learned, um, well, that I, I learned this teacher's experience. She uh, got stopped walking down the hall. And the student said, uh, Miss, I, I know what you do every time I see you in the hall. And she this and he said, I notice that you smile on everybody and then you see me oh. and you stop smiling. This is amazing. I mean, kids tell us the vulnerability, the vulnerability that it takes to say this stuff. And he said to her, and then you stop smiling when you see me. And he had what it takes to say, would you smile at me more, please? Would you smile at me more, please? Now, 
He wasn't going to be able to say, when you smile at me, it lowers my heart rate, my blood pressure, and my cortisol. <laughs> okay, that child doesn't know that. That child just knows, God, that feels better. Hey, do I still get to be here? Am I still human? I know I really ticked you off five minutes ago, but am I still here? Do I still get to be in relationship? And that lowers. A smile is the only facial expression that soothes the amygdala. Now, we do a lot of neutral, don't we? Hi. Never going to know how I really feel. <laughs> Hi. How you doing? Neutral. I didn't sign up for this. You know, I didn't have children or decide to become a, a teacher because I want to ruin anybody's life. So now that I'm realizing that this particular person really gets to me, I'm going to be neutral. I want to make it worse. I'm just going to have a non-effect. Well, what does neutral communicate to the animal brain? Oh, great. And insecurity. Insecurity? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Indifference means insecurity because where is that going? What does that mean? What, is, what, what are you feeling exactly and where is this going to go? I have to be prepared for wherever this could go. So if I can't tell immediately in milliseconds that, oh, okay, no, it's okay. What? I don't know. And if you're going to go down, I'm not coming with you, right? It's I've got to be prepared. So your neutral is alarming. And the shift we have to make is, if I'm having a really hard time smiling at this person, because they really tick me off, we're taking it personally. Which, yes, we're taking it personally because we didn't know about the Kindle amygdala. We just thought this kid has oppositional defiant disorder, trying to ruin my life. What is this, man? I didn't sign up for this. Now we understand what's really going on. This is a capacity issue. It's not a compliance issue. We're constantly confusing compliance with capacity. Do they have the capacity to do what I'm asking them to do? This is not oppositional defiant disorder. So that switches everything. And now, because we're using our tools and feeling our separateness from the trauma vortex, right? Hear the amygdala. Because it's going. I want you to hear it and go, oh, here's that trauma vortex right he was talking about. I am going to feel my feet on the ground. And I'm going to breathe in through my nose. And I'm going to imagine there's a wall or something. I can't even really hear what you're saying. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. Or else, you're in the vortex and you're going back and forth, right? Why is this so scary to them? Because they knew they were crazy. Now they know you're crazy too. <laughs> Who's going to lead us out of this one? Anybody? Anybody? Laughing feel great. I want you to notice it's highly essential, right? There's so much neuroscience out on if we don't play as adults, Healthy, healthy play, healthy play. Um, <laughs> if we don't play as adults, if our kids don't get to play, the brain like it shrivels up. 
what you don't use, you lose. And do you want to lose your funny bone? No way, man. Life is not fun that way. So guess what happened? This teacher decided, all right, that's it. He's never going to catch me not smiling at him again. Oh my God. Okay. So then she started looking for him down the hall. So she's looking for him. Oh, there he is. Okay. He stopped her again, and he said that was so thick. We can try. We can try to make it. The chapter in I'm writing, my, my next book is Mainstream. This has been for parents and educators, and the next one's going to be for all of us, and it's called 60 Seconds. And, um, and oh gosh, why was I going to tell you <laughs> This is sad, isn't it? I'm telling you, I've got to exercise a very particular part of my brain. Um, oh, thank you guys are so good. I love you, I love you, thank you. That's exactly right. Um, the, I have a chapter in there called Why Faking It Ain't Making It. That's all. That's all I was going to say to that. Um, and yeah, so we do try. We certainly do try. We try the neutral face. We try the stuffing it, right? And just kind of plowing through the day because, you know, then there's happy hour. And if I can just get to, if I can just get to happy hour, everything will be okay. So we stuff it. Right? We do the neutral and we get through the day. Right? And then we wonder at the end of the day why our neck is killing us. Why am I so sore? Because you're insympathetic all day long. Everything's urgent. Everything's really important. It all has to happen right now. Oh my God, what did you do? Right? All of this. The sympathetic is always going to tell you there's something wrong. And that urgency is. It's destroying us. It really is. It's completely destroying our health, the development of our children, our capacity to achieve. Something's gone wrong here. So, we know how to write it. This is the great news. And it's so simple. It's so simple. Do know, I understand how oversimplistic it sounds. Just take a look at the science and where the science keeps leading. It leads to one place. All roads are leading to Rome. They're all leading to Rome. This is Rome. <laughs> this is Rome. Um, yes, so that was the smiling story because I want you to know about the external resources that are the most important. Remember I said, I want you really focused on um, internal, giving them internal resources. So, because when those resources are internal, now they take them with them everywhere they go, don't they? When they're trying to fall asleep at night, when they're walking down the hall, when they're dealing with their parents, when they're dealing with different teachers, it's in them, this physiology. The most important internal resource is, of course, self-regulation. But there are some very important external resources, and one of them happens to be this funny little thing called smiling. And how many seconds does it take to do that? And what's the difference that it makes? One teacher emailed me and said, you know, I left there and there were so many things, I didn't know where to start. All I started doing was smiling more. You can't believe my class. She said, cannot believe what that's done for my class. One silly little thing like smiling. If we're not able to do it, it's that personal place. And we've got to take care of ourselves enough that we're not 
not perceiving this as something personal because we're in our amygdala. That's, that's the big difference. So the more we use this for us, the more we can come and have our neocortex that reminds us, okay, there's the Kindle amygdala. This is not about me. I'm going to take care of me. I don't need to be talking at this right now. It's going to make it worse. No words. Don't do it. Now, do I want you to completely disconnect and slam the door and get out of there? You know? No. But as much as you can be, a quiet, calm presence until the storm passes. And this is in these extreme cases. Not all the cases are so extreme. But again, right, we're going fewer words and, and more sensory experiences that are soothing. So um, another external that's hot, very, very important, and I won't spend time on these. There's a lot of research for this. There are books. There's, you know, but it's, it's um, and a lot of grants now, nature, a lot of grants are available to schools, just so you know. Um, find them and get your nature programs going at your site because it completely changes the brain. And of course, animals are, and pets. And we've got ours uh, walking through our schools because of course we're here in California where it's warm enough. And we have the kids feeding them and taking care of them. But science labs, you know, some of these more tricky kids, they need to be the ones that get to go and take care of the animals or water the plants or do something that's related because, why would I say these things? Because of how they're causing the optimal functioning of the brain. We need that brain to be functioning optimally. And these are the conditions that allow for the brain to um, operate. So if they're, and of course we have nature deficit disorder now, you've heard of that book I'm sure, The Last Child in the Woods. You know, 80% of Americans uh, live, oh no, sorry, 90% of Americans live in urban centers. I'm getting the 80 and the 90 mixed up. And 90% of them are, uh, okay, I'm getting this mixed up. And I just read it. I'm going to get it. 80% of us live in urban centers, and we are spending 90% of our time indoors. transforms your classroom, the, your really tricky kids, and your school. Internal. We know the most important one is self-regulation. We know that the way we develop it is by triggering over and over again the parasympathetic branch. This triggers the parasympathetic. This triggers the parasympathetic. This triggers the parasympathetic in very deep ways. They've got the sympathetic down. They live there. We don't need to be adding to that. That's why we take our words away. I want us to be thinking about more of the things we can be taking away to back off the system. And if that's all you did was just stopped doing some things that are making it worse, that would be great. We didn't know that it was making it worse. We don't do things to make it worse. But now we know that that, okay, whoa, that just made that system fire up. I don't need to be doing that. That's making my job harder. I don't want to make my job harder just to prove a point or to show that I'm the powerful one. Ooh, don't do it. It's, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah? Negative reinforcement. Yeah, it's when you take away, right? So the idea with negative is that you take away the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Let me get some water. Excuse me. 
And what's my time? What time is it? Fifteen minutes. Yay! I'm so happy when I have time. Okay. So we've got, we know we trigger this over and over and over again. And how do we do that most powerfully? I don't need to um, review these very much, which is really nice. We can just move on um, because I, I've covered this, right? We know that with um, the 60 seconds, what we've done is we've grounded the live wire, the feet. We have grounded the live wire. It instantaneously lowers blood pressure. A teacher got up at one of my seminars and said, oh, the neuroscience has explained why when I was in basic training, he had just gotten back from the war in Afghanistan and he was back in the classroom teaching. And through the whole basic training, he was told over and over and over again to, do you mind if we, if we, thank you so much. It, over, he was told over and over and over again to constantly be wiggling his toes. Wiggle your toes, wiggle your toes, wiggle your toes. And, you know, they told him that it was going to help him make good decisions on the battlefield, but, you know, didn't give the science behind it. So he always wondered, you know why they really focused on me doing that, saying that I would be able to make better decisions on the battlefield. He said, you just gave me the science. So what we know is that when we wiggle our toes, it helps us to feel our feet on the ground. And when we can feel connected to this bigger, solid foundation, it instantaneously lowers that blood pressure, which then lowers heart rate, which then allows us to take a deeper, healthier breath. And then we get this back from being hijacked, right? Hijacked by this, it goes away. We get it back. So this is what the grounding is all about. And that's what this is, by the way. This is not a relaxation exercise. I love that it relaxes you. Fabulous. But that's not what this is. This is not meditation. This is not mindfulness. That's not what this is. Now, it certainly can be construed to be that, for sure. It's all of those things, but it's more. It's more. These are five tools, five little tools in one little minute that are, is absolutely rewiring that brain for groundedness. That's what this is about. It's not about relaxation. It's about grounding the live wire. The next thing that we did here is we took in the support of the chair, and what's really nice to add to that is finding how you're anchored to it. And usually it's on your bottom, you know, you can just feel yourself really anchored on this chair because your weight sits on it. And that anchor, what does an anchor do for a ship in a storm? What do roots growing into the ground do for a tree going through a storm? Our sequoias have been standing for 700 years. How? It's the roots. It's being connected. This is highly essential. Taking in the support of the chair so that they build neural pathways for beginning to notice where support is in any given moment. Where's support coming from now? Can I notice my support? This bed feels really good. My couch while I'm watching television. My car while in my car seat while I'm driving. This is what begins to happen. Is everyone starts to notice where support is. So this is also very grounding. Lowers everything. Now, the next thing we did is we breathed in through our nose. Okay? So we know that the breathing, the breath, in through the nose, 
not the mouth. We want to rewire that. We want to see and teach them over time. When you first start doing the 60 seconds, don't worry about the belly, but eventually, when they're nice and hardwired to breathe in through their nose, you can add. Now, let's see if we can get that air into the belly. And they can imagine, you know, blowing their belly up like a balloon. Uh, they, it's fun. It's really fun. I, st- I have stories about all this stuff and the materials so that you can see, you know, what some of their reactions are and what you do, and they really love it. So that's the breathing in through the nose. So we're rewiring the message to the brain that says, no, you know what? It's okay. Not as urgent as I thought. It's all right. It's okay. That message is delivered by a breath in through the nose. Now, the next thing that we do is that visualization, right? Oh, please, please, please. If you're not using visualization in your classrooms, this is a huge tool for success that is being used. And by the way, all of these are being used by uh, the LA Lakers, professional athletes, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. What, what, what is that basketball player doing at the free throw line? There you go. So he's got his feet on the ground, the weight, the weight, right? And it's going back and forth. Those feet, you feel your weight on this foot, your weight on that. That's grounding, grounding the live wire. Breathing in through the nose, big breaths in through the nose, and visualizing the shot getting sunk. Visualizing the success. How long does this take about? How long are they usually there? 60 seconds, maybe? Everybody's doing this but us. (laughs) It's really funny, isn't it? Everybody's doing this but us. These CEO people, oh my goodness, they they're doing, they have to do their mindfulness and their meditation and their yoga. They're managing billions of dollars. They can't afford to make a mistake. That's high stress, and they can't afford to make a mistake. What is more stressful than going into combat? And they're learning how to do this so that they have their neocortex that will keep them alive. Visualization. And then, of course, the most important is noticing now. An experience without awareness is an experience you never had. I know somebody, you know what somebody did for me with that? Because that one's actually original. I steal a lot of stuff, right? That's what you do, is you go to these conferences and you get all this stuff. And every now and then I coin my own little things as I'm going along. And that one was really moving to one audience and they blew it up, they wrote it on a beautiful beach and they framed it and gave it to me as a thank you. So I have this little quote and it says, Reggie Melrose, you know, Reggie Melrose said that. <laughs> Usually it's somebody else saying it. Anyway, so an experience without awareness is an experience that you've never had. And let me explain. So when you have focused attention on something, neurons fire stronger. Neurons fire stronger. Focus attention, which is just awareness, right? When you're noticing. So when you ask, right, this is the single most important um, uh, thing to, uh, part of this, let me say. The most important part is after you've used the tools, now what are you noticing happening as a result of using these tools? And that gets them to completely buy in. It's really fun. Some of them say, what are you doing to my body? This feels good. And they'll say, I don't remember ever feeling this good. I mean, there's some, you know, kind of, sometimes it'll break your heart what they say. Um, 
the, the gang, I, I work with a lot of gang members and, um, and kids that haven't been jumped in yet, but anticipate being jumped in. And the first gang member I used this with, um, when I asked him, I said, you know, what are you noticing? And he did a, like a, I'll do it standing up, but he was, he was here. And he, you know, looked himself over and he looked back up and he said, I haven't even smoked one yet. I haven't had my joint. I haven't, I haven't, this is what he said. He said, it, and, and of course, as we talked about it after, how life-changing this was because he was always walking around going, am I ever going to be okay again? Am I ever going to be okay again? What's the matter with me, man? Like, what's going on in my skin? Am I going to be okay? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got my joint in my locker. Okay. Right, right, right. Get to that. Oh, okay. But he didn't want to. He realized he wasn't present. He wasn't here. He was missing out on a whole lot. He wasn't doing well in school, and he wanted to do well in school. But he was willing to pay the price for the relief. He needed the relief. Nobody had ever shown him before how to get the relief in a healthier way. And so that's what he did. But it was life-changing for him to realize, I will be okay again. I'm actually okay right now from doing this. Seriously? Okay. Now, um, the noticing. You know with visualization, you, you know the, the, the basketball study that showed that the, that the group that actually practiced didn't do any better on sinking the shots than the group that only saw themselves sinking the shots. This is really, really important to our work as teachers. And this is how one teacher applied the 60 seconds and really used visualization because he had come to the talk really wanting a solution for all the drama in transition times. So, you know, the bell's about to go and all this, you know, or they're coming in and it takes a long time to settle down. So they would come into class, he'd do the 60 seconds. Then at the end of the class, he did the 60 seconds again. And when he did the 60 seconds at the end of class, he, the visualization he wanted them to have and guided them to have was, now I want you to see yourself transitioning to your next class quietly and calmly. Would you see yourself packing your backpack, please? You don't need to be. See yourself focused on that and not distracted by what everybody else is doing. He led them through this visualization to see where they were going to be going. And by doing that, neurons fire. When you're visualizing something, neurons fire as though you're actually having that experience. So when you get up to go do it, you go, oh, I've done this a million times, even if you've only done it a million times in your head. Those neurons fire. Like when you wake up from a dream and you go, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted, right? You can admit you're even sore. I have flying dreams and I'm like, right get on the ground. And I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, right? Now my body was just lying there all night. But those neurons were firing as though I was actually flying and so I was tired and sore. So you see how that works. So this is a tool that's seeing the success. This might be a good place for me to tell you about the chocolate cake study. Um, if you, uh, and how am I on time? Because I don't want to take up any of your lunch time at all. Okay, good, I'm gonna take them. This is a good place to end for, for, for lunch. The, here's the chocolate cake study. And this, I hope, changes the planet for good. So. One group is told that they're going to go into a room with a piece of chocolate cake. That's all they're told. Okay. What? One by one, one by one, those people go in and have their turn with a piece of chocolate cake. 
The second group is told, now you're going to go into a room with a piece of chocolate cake, and you know, you really shouldn't eat that cake. Your doctor said, you know, your numbers aren't great, or you know, whatever. I want you to really think about the last time you ate too much chocolate cake. That didn't feel good, did it? You don't want to be doing that. Your jeans were tight. Oh, no, don't do it. So you're going to go into a room with a piece of chocolate Don't eat it. Focus on how bad you felt the last time you did. Third group, you're going to go into the room with a piece of chocolate cake. And when you're in that room with a piece of chocolate cake, I want you to focus on the last time you were able to have a few bites of a piece of chocolate cake and push it aside. You savored those bites of chocolate cake. Absolutely delicious. You enjoyed it. You pushed it aside. You got into your jeans the next day. Great. Focus on that. Who ate the most chocolate cake? The second group. The second group. When we focus on the bad decisions and choices we've made, when we have our students and our children review and reflect and remember, oh God, yeah, I really messed that up, right? When we have them sit in the shame state. Now, why do we have them sit in the shame state? Because it's logical and linear that if we can make them feel bad enough for what they did, surely they'll never do it again. Right? Or wrong? (laughs) What we've learned is it's a big old wrong. If we have them sit in the shame state, then they want to medicate the shame state. It doesn't feel good and we're biologically driven to feel better. We're willing to pay whatever price we have to pay to get the relief that comes from the self-medication of not having to feel the shame, the powerlessness, the hopelessness of I can't control myself, I did it again. And so in schools, we're having them come in and write out what they did and what are they gonna do differently next time. And you know, we'll do this. Okay, so you're looking at me, we know what you're doing differently. Shake on it, right? Okay, we shook on it, all right. Not going to do it again. Boom. And they kindle the megala. The second they're out the door. By focusing, by focusing with them, with ourselves and with them. Hey, you know what? This isn't you. I had to do this with my own son. This was a trying time. Anyway, I'd say, this isn't you. I know who you really are. I remember all the times that you didn't have this reaction. Don't you remember? You, this time somebody upset you, and that time, remember on the playground when this happened and you just ended up giving them the ball back? Remember? I've seen you make great choices and decisions. You've made plenty of them. We're not going to focus on this. We're going to focus on that feeling that comes, right? Doesn't that feel good? I want you to see that great choice, and I want you to see yourself making it again. You can. And so you use visualization to bring it into the for future possibility, deepening it, but you also have this remembering of the power of when those good choices were made. We have to eliminate, and I know right now we're having them pull the card, right, change their color. I know we're having this, listen, and if it's working, here's, yeah, I love, this is when things kind of perk up a little bit, and people go, what, I'm not, what do you mean, what's the matter with that? Nothing if it's working, have us just for right now, just for right now, you can keep doing what you're doing, but just notice your feet on the ground. Notice your feet on the ground. Notice the support of the chair you're in. Do you need to make an announcement? Just, just a very brief. Never bring cookies and stuff in here for us a little bit later. 
So I understand you don't take a break. And no, time. we're going to so, be out of here at two thirty. Okay, so if you smell cookies, just kind of walk with both feet back gently so she doesn't notice you're missing and help yourself. Okay, thank you. Um, Do you mind if I have some of that? Okay, so we're just, all we're doing is we're continuing to do what we're doing and we're noticing our feet on the ground, taking in the support of whatever you're feeling some support in right now. You may be anchored to the bottom of your chair. I want you to breathe in through your nose. Okay, that's all. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. You don't need to stop. You don't need to go in a corner and do this for half an hour. You can just, in every little thing you're doing in your life, begin to notice, because when we notice, it wires. The neurons fire stronger for the experience, and then it becomes hardwired in the brain. Here we go. We're going to go over the other most important resources. Now, sensory awareness is right here. Sensory awareness comes to us through the 60 seconds experience. That's how we become more sensorily aware of what's going on. The most powerful thing, remember, is if you can start to read the cues of your body, if you can hear what your body is saying it needs, and you allow for that and give in to that, right? feeling safer. How do we feel safer? Well, I have the power to help my own self feel safer right here and now. I might have to take this scary test right now. How can I help myself to bring that fear feeling down so that I can do better in this situation? Those are the tools we're teaching. Okay. Now, some of you may know that, you know, going sensory with reading has made a tremendous difference to a lot of our special education students, actually, who go to special education for three years and are reading at the same reading level they were three years later as they were the year, uh, three years before. This is because, of course, it's all words. But when we bring the sensory piece into learning how to read, as happens with the Linda Bell reading program or the Wilson reading program, there are particular programs for reading that bring the whole sensory thing alive. And in fact, in the Linda Bell, and why I'm so excited to share this with you is because my particular ED students that weren't learning how to read were really, really struggling on how to do that. Um, and I was testing them. I was a school psychologist at the time and tested them three years later. And, oh, right? So I fought for them to get into our reading clinic, which was Linda Mood Bell. I didn't know anything about it. I just said, this is a resource my kids aren't getting, and that's not okay with me. Right? A lot of other kids were getting this. But, but these kids with emotional disturbance weren't getting this uh, option to go to this reading clinic. So <laughs> fought hard um, and got them into the clinic. And in four weeks, now this stuff does sound like miracles, but you need to know that that's when you go sensory, you're going to start to experience a lot of miracles. This is, let me just warn you. Um, so in four weeks, now it was intensive. They were there all day in, in this reading lab. But in four weeks, they jumped the three grade levels. Three grade levels in four weeks. I didn't believe it. I had to know, I had to, you know, so I, I investigated everything. I called them. I said, what is this Linda Moon Bell? What exactly are you doing? I bought the, the kit, and I had the director of the program teach me all about it. I had to know, because this was, a, it was completely life-changing. And, of course, what did I learn? And it was apparent so it was an educator seminar like this. 
but it was an educator that stood up and wanted me to know the story about her own child, her boy, that went to Linda Mood Bell. And she acted it out for me. She, she said she went in and observed her, her child in the Linda Mood Bell program and uh, was so excited to get the neuroscience behind why it was working because she said, she got up, she was actually standing, sitting where you're sitting in that room, and she got up and she said, here's what they have the kids do. They stand up. So the first thing they have them do is get up on their feet. Now, why would you get up on your feet to learn how to read? Because it engages the whole brain. Now we're working not just with the left part of the brain, we're working with the right part of the brain, and we're getting it grounded. So they were, they were um, told to stand. They were told to visualize the word, which many of them can't do, as you know. They're not making pictures in their mind anymore. A lot of pictures are being made for them, right? From the time they're born, they're stuck in front of that television sometimes. And they're not making their own pictures. So a lot of them struggle with knowing how to visualize and see a word. That gets wired in. Okay, if it's flamingo, and they think flamingo, flamingo, and they can't see the word. Listen, that flamingo, what is a flamingo? Uh, it's a bird. Okay, birds. Let's think about what birds have, right? Uh, feathers. Okay, can you see the feathers? And then they'll get pink and they'll go, yes, I see. it's pink. It's a pink bird. And they start to get it. See the word. And then they have the students put their hands on their jaw, on the front of their face, on their neck to notice the physical sensations that they're having when they make letter sounds, letter combinations. They start to, is it a pop? Does that sound, when you say this letter combination, does it pop? Does it vibrate? Is there tingling? Does your throat get smaller or bigger, right? Is it an open sound? Is it more of a closed sound? Why are these things important to learning how to read? It sounds crazy. Because it's sensory and that's the part of their brain that is most in operatum. Even if they haven't had a lot of stress and trauma, we know that we're a developing brain, and this neocortex takes a long, long time to develop into language. But if we can utilize the part of their brain that works for them the best and the fastest, well, they're good at that. And they say, this is important to learn how to breathe, how to read. I know how to do this. I can feel it, because they're in their sensations. So much more. So this, I thought, was very exciting, very different. It's the talk about a paradigm shift, but it's what's working. And our occupational therapy uh, programs, that um, one of them is called How Does Your Engine Run? And it's all about teaching self-regulation. So um, this is bringing that sensory piece and that self-regulation piece is the most important thing. Uh, time away, here's how we're gonna do time away differently. So right now we do this, you know, go calm down. So we know that that doesn't work. They go out there with their Kindle amygdala. Here's how it works differently. When you have sensory awareness, here's what you've done with the 60 seconds. You've given them the experience of four, five, six, seven. So now they know what it, what it means to calm down. I had a teenager say to me, oh, this is what people mean when they use the word peace. That's what she said to me. She had no, I mean, she knew the word, she knew it theoretically. She said, this is what people mean. She was in the peace. You see, you can talk to them about, you know, get peaceful, get peaceful. <laughs> and they're thinking, well, that sounds great. Yeah. But what is that? They need a reference point for it inside of them to know that it's even true, that it even exists. 
So I don't know where all my markers went. Does anybody have an idea? Okay. Let's see. No? I've got red. That's what I've got. Oh, no, there are. Of course, I have them up here. Here they are. Okay. So when you've given the experience of four, five, six, seven, now here's where you know this curriculum piece comes in, where we use a little bit of language. Now let's say you just do the 60 seconds a few times, maybe for a week. They're going to start saying to you, what, what's going on? What are you doing exactly? Right? I'm feeling better. This feels good. Are we doing it? And even the naysayers in the back of the room, they're going, this is so dumb. I mean, you're going to get that, right? What's this? You'll have your ones that do that. Guess what? They're the ones. This is so fun to see this transformation. They end up being the ones that come in like early. And they're like, okay, yeah, hi, we're doing that thing. I'm just going to sit here. Ready, ready when you are, right? I'm telling you, because it starts to feel so good, it becomes undeniable. So um, when you give them this experience, then they say, oh, and you can throw in there, maybe a week or two into doing it, you can say, I'm putting you in the zone. That's what we're doing. Right? If they say, what are you doing to me? You can say, get me in the zone. This is where the brain can do the things you want it to do, no matter what you want it to do. Now, maybe they don't care. This isn't true. They all want to do well in school. But let's say they're more focused on their socialization and they want to ask somebody out on a date. You know, you can, you can let them know that it helps everything. Everything gets easier when you're in this zone, and you can let them know that. The things that are important to you that you wish you could do better, it all happens in the zone. This is the flow. It just, you really, as I have related to you, and of course not everybody's like me, you're going to have your own way of relaying it to them in a way that is really hopeful and exciting. That is what you're giving them back, is a lot of hope, a lot of hope that, that things can get better and they do. So when they're in that, you can say, all right, you're in the four, five, six, seven. You could do that. You could say you're in the zone, right? And then you could say, this is where it all happens. Now, now that you've all had an experience of it, and you, you know, one time just explain the zone. Then another time. I want you spending seconds on this stuff. Seconds. Do the 60 seconds, explain it for 30 seconds, move on. But you could also let them know, you know, you're going to feel yourself moving out of the zone sometimes. We don't get to be there permanently, that's for sure. When you start to notice those first signs, and you can say to your students, oh, Kelly, let's say, I'm just going to throw names. Um, Kelly, I know that, that when you, you know, start to move out of the zone, I can see it. Your jaw starts clenching or your leg starts jumping. I know, you know what you do. Sometimes you see me clenching my jaw, right? And we're transparent that we're in this together. This is for me, this is for you. Um, and there are these signs that let us know that we're moving out. We're moving out of that zone. If they can start to feel themselves in the zone, they start to become aware of when they're moving out of the zone. Highly, highly essential to finishing education is, is, is knowing that, feeling that difference, that I'm here, oh, now I'm not here, right? i got to bring myself back. If that awareness, see a lot of them, they don't even know they're not here, and they don't know what it means to be here. But if we don't have them in this present moment focused and able to be here, they're not hearing anything, but they don't even know they're not. It's, it's a very interesting thing that this is, is what's happening, but it is, it is what's happening. 
So we want to bring their awareness to when they're in it and when they're starting to move out of it. Now when we do time away, right, we're going to let our classroom community know that, hey, when you can start to feel yourself going, or I can start to see signs that you're going, or I am noticing it in myself, there's a signal in here. We give each other a signal. We give each other a signal to know that I need to do it. Now, very soon they'll be able to do it right there in their own chair. But there might be a period of time while these neural pathways are building that they need you know, a sensory corner, we're calling them these days, a, a little safe place in the room, or walk around the track. But the difference here now is they have the signal. It's not shaming. It isn't, go get it together, would you? What's wrong with you? That shame place is the chocolate cake stuff. Okay, they're going to eat lots of chocolate cake. So we don't do it with the shame. We do it by normalizing that, hey, we all need to regulate. This is too much for all of us. I need to regulate. You need to regulate. So that signal, and they can do it away or here where it's, where it's safe and you can see them. And now they know what to do while they're on their time away. Now, you know, it, it wonderful um, neuroscientists are calling this not time out anymore, not time away even, but time in. Time in. We don't do time out anymore. We do time in. <laughs> I've got to be connecting in this safer, healthier way. So they can give you the signal. They can go and do it. And now they know what they're doing. And when you see how they come back into the room, when they realize, I did it. I controlled my behavior. Right? I mean, they're certainly not as verbal as verbal as that, but what they're doing is realizing inside, oh my gosh, I have nobody to apologize to. I didn't, I didn't tell my teacher to off or whatever it is that they're saying these days. Um, you know, I didn't chuck a chair. I didn't uh, start foaming at the mouth and completely humiliating myself in front of all of my peers. I actually felt... Myself, I did it. I went. There was no shame. It's normalized. We all need to do this. I'm back, and I'm going to sit down, continue on. That power of self-governance <coughs> comes from the use and the application of these tools and, and, of course, giving chances to practice, and it'll get better and better and more and more automatic. So that's how we do time in now instead of time out. Listen, with empathy, this is one of the most uh, recent neuroscientific findings, that sensory awareness is the necessary prerequisite to the development of empathy. When you can't feel yourself, who cares? And a funny thing happens with the neocortex. It starts believing that nobody else feels anything either, so who cares? And they can kill a cat and they can kill a person. Because this feeling place is gone. I don't feel. I'm numbing. You know, the the amygdala is so activating. And we go to that self-medication place or we're behaving in a way, right? Our, Our rage. When we're raging, we're not in our body. The reason we do all of that is so that we're not feeling what's going on in our body. And when we can't feel that, when we can't feel ourselves, we are capable of the worst, right? As we start to feel ourselves again in a safe way, oh, I'm here, I'm in this, this feels better. Ah, when you can really feel yourself, then you know other people are feeling too, and you can't. It, it just becomes 
an impossibility because of that feeling connection. Okay, now safety. Let's move on. Now, we know to be creating safety, we're doing it in all kinds of ways. Here's the most important way we do it. We do it through, um, yes, yes, okay, our structure, our rules, our routine, our rituals. The more we create predictability, the safer people feel. If it's one way one day, and it's a different way the next day, and this is trauma. I mean, it's stress. It's the same thing, is I don't know how it works in here, how it works each day. So we've got to get more consistent. How do we get more consistent? We become predictable. The more we are not zero-tenning, the more we are in our zone. So the, the truth is, is that you could have all of this stuff going, but if you're not a safe person, then there's no safety in this relationship, and so we really don't end up with safety. So you can dot your I's and cross your T's on your program. You can have it all in place. But if you're not safe, all of that goes to pot. That's the problem. So we've got to be making sure we're, we're as safe as we can be. Listen, please don't hear me saying anything about you getting it all right all the time. You know, it's you, you, you. That, that's not what I'm saying. We're just going to work on being the best we can be. We're, we're fallible. And we're fallible. Stress is real. We live on planet trauma. This isn't about, you know, anything other than, hey, I'm learning some tools. If I apply them enough, I'll get a little bit better. I'll be a little less reactive. I'll be a little more tolerant. I'll be able to stay calmer longer. And watch what that does. It changes everything. So we become safe when we're doing our 60 seconds for us. Now, you know, you know about if-then charts so that they can predict the consequences. If you do this, here's a fabulous consequence. If you do this, here's a not-so-fabulous consequence. <laughs> the consequences are important. I want you to be giving them. I don't hear me say, oh, you know, it's a free-for-all. No, 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 no. Safety comes from containment, limits and boundaries. Now, we apply them with compassion instead of shaming. That's the difference with the chocolate cake study. Because we know that the shaming them into the better behavior depletes them of the neurochemistry they need to engage in the better behavior. It comes from juice. It comes from the right amount of feeling good. Then they can do that. So we want to make sure uh, that our, um, our consequences are in place, that they are predictable, for, for what's healthy and what's unhealthy, that there's a consequence. I don't like to say good and bad, um, so I say a healthy behavior versus an unhealthy behavior. Um, and, and that allows them to feel less shame about not having the control yet. And always saying to them, my favorite RSP teacher that I work with, she says to the kids, if you're not getting it, don't worry, you will. You'll get it. We just keep practicing. If you're not getting it, you will. And you just keep laying those neural pathways and strengthening them. Okay, so we've already heard about DRO, you know, their schedule on their desk. Some of these kids just really need to know what's happening every minute. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah, so sometimes the schedule right there on the desk and they can keep referring back to it, you know? But have it on your board to review. They just, these kids need to know what's coming next. So as much as we can build that into um, creating safety in the room. Okay, now uh, 
here's one thing we can eliminate doing to create more safety in relationship, right? Because today needs to be about some of the things we start eliminating, right? We want to we wanna have some neural pruning and things that we want to add. And an important thing is to stop asking them why. So right now, there's a behavior, and we say, why do you keep doing this? Don't we? Don't we say, why? Didn't we just have this conversation? What's the matter? <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you is essentially what we're saying, right? <laughs> what's the matter with you anyway, <laughs> you crazy person? And so we'll say, why do you keep doing this? If you would just explain to me, then maybe I could help you. Right? <laughs> Talk about scary. So they need to figure out a way, because what would they have to say to you? Well, you know, I've got this Kindle amygdala, and uh, it's just going, going, going because of the stress in my life. And, uh, you know, this is what they'd have to say to us to tell us why. They don't know why. They have no clue. And they're terrified that they have no clue. And they've really been hanging in there because they keep thinking every new teacher they get, maybe they'll know why. <laughs> maybe they'll explain it to me. Maybe they'll even show me how to calm down and how to relax. Who finds it relaxing to be told to relax? Relax! Calm down! Chill out! Come on, come on, come on! Whatever that is, right? Do it, just do it! This is not relaxing. This does not calm anybody down. This makes it worse. So we have to be noticing. What I'm trying to do with this student, I'm doing obviously out of a very good place. We're, we're there doing this out of a very good place. So what we're saying and doing is because we're trying to make the situation better. This is not a blame game. Okay, we're all just trying to figure out how to do it better. What we have to get really good about doing now, moving forward, is noticing the impact that our choice is having on the situation. So you're getting upset, and I'm saying calm down. Now, if I'm taking care of myself with my tools, then I can notice, I can be in the moment with you, and notice, oh, this isn't working, is it? Uh, me telling this person to calm down is leaving them more and more upset. In fact, their whole body language might change. They might back off, they might turn away, they might... They're showing us all the time. So that's our indication where we can say, okay, I just popped this person more out of the zone. How can I be so that we're back in the zone? And we can start with us in that moment, and then we can, <laughs> we can re remind them as well. And this is the beauty of doing the 60 seconds in your whole room every day, is that it's just, it be, it'll become a signal. It'll become a signal. It'll become something that they don't need to go anywhere for. They can sit right there. You can give them the little signal with a little smile or a little wink, right? Uh, when I'm walking down the hall with a lot of my students, you know, the ones who have really, really taken on this 60 seconds in a big way, when they see me in the hall, they go, huh? Right? They're letting me know. They do this little thing. We don't say anything. They just catch my eyes, and I catch them, and they go, because they're doing it. They're doing it. A 14-year-old that I worked with recently said, hey, this is, this is like, you can do this walking around, he said. You can, I said, exactly. It's a walking meditation, right? It's a walking, walking, talking tool. You can be driving your car and doing it, okay? Uh, so we've got um, community being highly, highly essential, right? 
and I should say, what do you replace the why with, right? This is all, all in my stuff too. When you ask why, and I'm saying don't do that, I want you instead to be just, if this is happening, right, and now they're coming to you, hey, you know what, I know why. I'm going to ask you why. I have an amygdala too, right? You're going to be, you know, sharing a little bit of this, as is developmentally appropriate over time, that you're going to have this language. It's going to make your life so much easier. You're going to be talking about the big white elephant in the room. Can you imagine an education that we're not talking about stress and pressure? Can you imagine as parents, we're not talking about stress and pressure with our kids? and how this is changing the brain, and what we can do to, to get ourselves brain-charged or, or getting our brains ready, our nervous system ready. We've got to start talking about the big white elephant in the room. Yes? So you would just, so let's say you have a, a, a kid in a classroom and the kid is flipping out. Yeah. You would say, tell the student, I understand why you're doing that. No, what no, when say? a student, when so, a student, okay, now you're talking about when a student is so flipping out. So when they're, okay. in, so when they're in that angry part. Yes, let's talk about that. And, you know, and, and I understand you wouldn't ask why. I mean, I know, I'm a mom, yeah. I, that's a dumb question for me. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, if I knew why, I would I wouldn't be doing it. Right. Right. So, yeah. So what would you say instead? Well, first student? of all, no talking at all. Right. No talking at all. Okay, so this is really, really important. So while that's happening, now I, are you in an ED room or you're in somebody's just verbally flipping out with you? There, um, well, it could be anything. I, I'm just, we oversee our district, so yeah. we have 16 schools each. So yeah. I'm thinking of an SDC classroom or just a regular yeah. classroom yeah. where you have kids who the teacher thinks is an ADHD kid, but you know, it's probably just a kid who has emotional Oh yeah, problems. dysregulation. It's just, right. it's just dysregulation. So when they're acting like that, what tools? When I they're use? in the moment. Mm -hmm. you, you don't talk. You don't talk. And this is the beauty, okay? This is, uh, uh, the, the, the neuroscience is so clear and it has so simplified. And so this is, the simplistic answer is this. When that is not going to happen as often when you're doing this. We have to move to what can I do every day to build up in these students greater self-regulation so that happens less right. and that when it happens, this is just a signal. I don't talk. I don't say a thing. In fact, I may back off. I may back off. I don't abandon Right? Here's the student doing that. We're standing there. We're taking care of ourselves and not engaging, not making it worse. You continue teaching. What do you do with the other 29 kids? Yeah, sure. You can. If, well, it, you know, I have to be in that knowing what this flip out is. Is it just verbal? It's Are they chucking chairs? No, it's, it's just verbal and just like yeah. slamming their hands yeah. on the desk. Yeah. So, and so you have all the other kids who are. Yes. I just keep teaching. Yeah, well, listen, it's the most important reason I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this tool with you mm -hmm. is because you want that behavior to change, right? Right. right. So it's, it, I love that we're talking about the crisis moment, and we do have to know what to do in the crisis moment. I'm talking about eliminating right. crisis moments. So I've done this one time in my classroom. Yeah. Now yeah. the kid is yeah. so, out, so now what do I do? So we know, we know that it's between 21 to 28 times before assuming that they can just start to do that. Right? Okay. So in this, you do not want to engage. 
Now, it's up to you. I don't know whether this, sometimes it's in a special day class, sometimes it's in a regular classroom, sometimes, depending on the level of the breakout, sometimes the class has to leave. The class has to leave, right? There's no fighting with this student to get this student to leave so that we can get some teaching going on. So there are extreme, I've worked in the most extreme situations, so I have lots of answers to your question. It's not a simple question because there are so many different variations. What room are we in? Where are we at? What are your school's resources? But I've taken my class out of the room. And what I've done is had somebody come and take the class out, and I'm staying in relationship with this freakout because the safety is going to come from my relationship with this person who's having this freakout. I don't abandon. I stay with this freak out, and in, in, a, in an extreme situation, I make myself smaller. I don't look at them. Eye contact is extremely arousing, and I make myself small, because if we approach, if we're big and we're approaching, and it's funny, I was just working with a principal in Chico, California, who said, okay, here's what I do, and he started showing me what he does. He's a really, um, like a big guy, and he has a lot of movement inside of him. It's just, it's just him. You know, it's just how he moves. So he goes, you know, I want to know, Reg, like, what happened? I was talking to this kid the way I talk, and, and you know, most kids it really works with or whatever, and he just started flipping out. And I said, okay, well, show me, and he showed me. You know, he was like, well, what's the, what's the thing, and what's the thing? And he started showing me, and I went, whoa, like, back off. Like, simmer down, right? You just want to have one of those moments where you're saying, calm down. Um, but it doesn't work. you got to show them how. Um, but, you know, this is, we are doing things inadvertently that we don't realize we're doing, but everything is communicating a message to the animal brain that's either keeping it feeling safer or not. And when we feel the tension building up in somebody, or they're jumping around, and look at me with my phone going off. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Okay, not good. Not good when that happens. Okay, so... Um, you see what I'm saying? Is that, it, it, okay. So looking, I think I was looking for the get small piece. Okay. Yeah. I figure, okay. I, mean, I think I would stay in the classroom if I'm the teacher because I've developed that relationship with him. Yes. And um, sending yes. the kids out, I can see that. But yes. If there's no one with me. Yeah. And I don't have anyone I can call. Then making myself small and just and not way. doing the eye contact. We don't want to be gawked at. Okay. <laughs> Gawking, when people are gawking at us, when we're doing something that now we're out of control, it's humiliating enough. They don't have an awareness of how humiliating until later a lot of times. But they're engaged in something that's going to later be a source of shame. We do not need to be gawking at them. We need to be there in our own calm presence, not talking at it. The longer we talk at it, the longer you're in misery. Okay, so I, I'm going to move on, but please, I do love the questions. I just need to um, keep it moving. <laughs> so, okay, good. I'm so glad. All right, so we're a community, right? Why is community so important? What I want you to know about these four resources, right, and sensory awareness includes the 60 seconds. Why these four resources are up here? From Harvard to UCLA, all the neuroscience that we have now over 23 years boils it down to these four things. How we end up with self-regulation and achievement depends upon these four factors. Sensory awareness through the 60 seconds so that we can start to notice when we're in and out of the zone so that we can learn what tools help us to get back into it. 
safety so that our amygdala isn't going, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. We need to create safety. The most important way we do that is through relationship, by us being a safe person where they can communicate with us without us going, you know, I don't want to hear this. Or, you know, whatever it is that we're, however we're responding. Safety through relationship. And yes, certainly through all these other things we talked about. And community. Community is very grounding. I belong somewhere. I belong somewhere. And so, you know, saying things like, we're in this together, and you're not alone, and we'll figure this out. That sense of, I belong here, I'm not going to get tossed, which is not always easy. Listen, there are realities, but in, our, in the best that we can do, this is what we strive for, is really giving a sense of belonging and community. And you know that. So I just want to get specific about some, some other ways that we can do this. We can assign everybody in the room your trickier buggers the most <laughs> an important role to play. Here's what's, you know what's decreasing violence and aggression and anger in prisons? This is what is happening. If we can do this in prisons, by God, we better be doing it in schools. Assigning an important role. Your life matters. You have a contribution to make. You have power in something. There's something that you have to give that I value. Right now, these stress and trauma babies, they know they're not raising your test scores. They get up in the morning, they don't have their homework. They do the walk of shame to school because the first thing you're going to ask for is their homework. They don't have their homework. So the whole day starts in the shame, right? And then you ask for the homework, and they don't have my homework. Right? I know I'm not raising your test scores, right? It, they truly believe they have no value, that they have no value to you. If they don't have a contribution to make, then what are they doing here? There you go. Okay? So what, what we can do, what we can do is to really acknowledge and recognize that thing, right? Like Johnny wants to come in and tell you the joke. You know, you know these kids I'm talking about. Johnny comes in, he goes, I got a joke for you. I got a joke for you. I want to tell you a joke. He's coming in with his Kindle of Mangala. And then you say, Johnny, 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 Johnny. Okay, listen, I want to hear the joke. I really do. I want you to get to the end of class, all right? You keep it together now. You keep it together. And at the end of class, you get your reward. I want to hear that joke. And he goes, oh, all right, okay, good. I'll just wait till the end of class. <laughs> I'll just wait till the end of class. Right? And he's sitting there, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, God, Veronica, you got to hear this one. Oh, my gosh, is this funny? Why don't you tell you the joke, right? All over the class. And you're going, Johnny, Johnny, would you stop? Johnny, I said at the end of class, Johnny, right? And we waste all that time trying to redirect Johnny. Why? Because we've confused resources with rewards. I really need everybody to get this, Okay. We cannot confuse resources with rewards. A resource is anything that gets us into the zone. That's a resource. If it's bringing about relief to the nervous system, not greater fear that it's a free-for-all or anything like that, but, oh, okay, this, this response that I'm getting from this person right now, is it, that this is a resource if it gets us into the zone, okay? If it doesn't get you into the zone, it's not a resource. Now, resources need to come first. They need 
to calm. They need to bring about that soothing response in the parasympathetic. That's what makes it a resource, is that it triggers the parasympathetic, and we come back down into this more self-regulated state. When we're here, we can earn rewards. That's where we can earn rewards. If we don't have the resource, and for Johnny, right, watch what happens when you say, Johnny, oh, I'm so glad you're here today, right? When he first walks in, Johnny, it's so good to see you. We need a laugh, right? Now, this may be a kid that's not good at anything else, but he loves to make you laugh. He loves to make the class laugh. It gives him his power, his sense of success and confidence that he has a, 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 a contribution to make. And now you really value that because you're recognizing now with the neuroscience, oh, boy, right? We only do well when we feel good. We only do well when we feel good. Johnny feels good, and so do all of us, <laughs> when we have a good laugh. So, Johnny, I'm so glad to see you. What's the joke today? It's clean. You need to see the clean jokes. And so, Johnny tells the joke, right? And everybody laughs. What happens to your physiology when you laugh? Same as when you smile. It lowers heart rate, blood pressure, and cortisol levels. So he gets that reaction, he feels his power, everybody's laughing. Now this is pretty bubbly energy that you then want to ground. So you want to you have that joy, that effervescence that everybody gets to feel, and he gets to feel his own personal power that he made this happen. And then you ground it with the 60 seconds. Watch how much teaching. How much more teaching. It's, uh, on the documentary, the principal is, is uh, in, in interviewed there, and he talks about how palpable the difference is before their 10.35 three-minute breathing break. Remember on the intercom, they have their three-minute breathing break. And after, he said, the entire energy of the school, it is completely palpable to him how much more teaching is happening after that sensory break. It is very, um, it is a, a big change that you'll really come to appreciate the more and more you experience that change in you. So, okay. Now, so Johnny got to tell that joke. And then he can earn the rewards, right? He can earn the rewards that come later. Now, um, this gives him some purpose, right? I want to go over this chances to repair. This is so important to a community. And, you know... With the Kindle's amygdala, when you're building neural pathways, you really do need chances to repair. Sorry is the hardest word. We know that from Elton John, don't we? Sorry is the hardest word. And it is, because it deepens our shame. It's like a public statement that I really you know, I was wrong. I really screwed up again. Here I am with my tail between my legs. I'm sorry. How much do we like to do that in our relationships? It's hard. You know, how many times have we said, I'm not going to do this to my partner again? Right? Those of you who have partners, I'm not going to do this to my partner again. This is wrong. Right? Name calling. Very bad. Very bad. Kindled amygdala <laughs> made me do it. And so <laughs> there we are. There we are doing something terrible that we're not, right? And we say to ourselves after, I'm never going to do this again. No way. This is just absolutely wrong. We feel shame of having done it. And then we do it again. And we got to say sorry again. So we don't really want a video camera at our house at night, do we? Really? Not really. We hold it together as much as we can through the day, and we save it all up for the people we love, and then we go home. <laughs> and our amygdala, right? So we need chances to repair. 
as human beings. We're fallible. That's all. No shame. Just there it was again. And can I keep rewiring? So I don't want you to hear me saying that you're just doing that. You have to be rewiring at the same time so that you do get less and less of these behaviors. It's always about the prevention of it. So we're always rewiring. But when it does happen, it's the consequence without shame, but with compassion, and reminding them of the last time they made a really good choice and they did it better. Remember that? That's what I want you focusing on right now. If you want a learner back in your room, you've got to have your students focus on when they didn't do it that way, when they actually made the better choice and were successful at governing themselves. That's how you're going to get more self-governance. So these chances to repair. I'm in this ED room. I'm, I'm, t I'm teaching the, the ED room. And you know how it is sometimes. You, you turn your back for a second, a second, and a whole chaos breaks out, right? So I went to write something on the board, you know, and I turn around and Lupe, remember I told you I was going to tell you about Lupe. Lupe, let's say you're Lupe and you're Lupe's best friend. And I turn around and Lupe is strangling the best friend. Now, you know, ED students don't really have friends. It's kind of a, kind of a, 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 liber, yeah, a liberal use of the word here. But, you know, the last person that could tolerate sitting with her for lunch, let's say. <laughs> you know, it's sad, but true, right? Okay, so Lupe's strangling. Now, <clears throat> listen, this is a crisis situation. Somebody is hurting somebody else here. I could have some huge 10 reaction, which I would have had probably two years earlier before I was doing this stuff for myself. But now that I was using it for myself, I was able to stay calm in this situation and have my wits about me. So I pull <laughs> Lupe off of her friend and I have her sit here and I say, I will see you after class. Are you okay? And I gave her the signal and then I looked at Lupe and I thought, you know, this happened to everybody in here. And I said, listen, I want everybody right now. We're going to do our 60 seconds right now. And now Lupe knows she's going to see me after class. There will be a consequence, as there always is, so that she understands that there's a limit. There's a limit. I get that you're amygdala's kindled, and you will see me after class. Um, and then we want to make sure that she's okay, and we all do our 60 seconds. Now, what ended up happening was Lupe is sitting back there, and... She starts looking, looking, looking at her friend, looking at her friend, darting to look at her friend, right? Now it's sinking in. I have nobody to have lunch with. What have I done? What have I done? Now I, I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody. What's the matter with me? Right? They get really scared that now they've really lost control of themselves. They've lost the only relationship that they have left. And it's terrifying. So they sit in their shame. They sit in their terror. She's darting, darting. Well, her best friend accidentally drops her pencil. And Lupe jumps up out of her seat and comes over and grabs the pencil and says, oh, here you go. I just thought you might like to have your pencil back. Sitting back in the shame. Now looking and looking and looking to see, will this make it okay? Will this make it okay? Sorry is not the thing to require. The word sorry is not the thing to require. That really does deepen that. that it's like a, a pronouncement. I am wrong and bad, right? Here I go to say sorry again. But these chances to repair, what are they doing? They're always engaging in some sort of behavior after. They're biologically driven to. They want to make the wrong right. 
They, every one of us wants to make our wrong right. Because when we do, we feel better. And that lets our brain know, okay, we're thriving. I'm feeling better. I'm thriving. I'll survive. So she's sitting there. Now, if I wasn't doing my 60 seconds, what do you think I might have said to a student that popped up out of their chair after they'd just been strangling, and now you're popping out of your chair again? I told you to sit there, Louvain. I might say something like that, right? I might do something like that. Is that going to help me to get a learner back? I'm going to have more problems. I'm going to have more problems. You know, sometimes we're creating our own problems we don't realize. But that's going to give us more of a problem. Now, what I was able to do, oh, thank you, tools. What I was able to do instead was um, say to Lupe, because she did something healthy, didn't she? She tried to repair it in her way. And it was something helpful. It was something human, wasn't it? We saw the animal. The animal's in us, animal brain. But now she sat and she's doing something human. We have to acknowledge and reward the human. And I said to her, this was back when I was doing a point system. And I said, Lupe, that is the Lupe I know. That's who you really are. Point on the board. Now, point on the board. She was just strangling somebody. How dare she get a point on the board, right? No more points for Lupe. No more points all month for Lupe, right? This is what we do. Because if we can make her feel bad enough, long enough, she'll never do it again. Nope. Got to get him back in the zone. Got to get him back in the zone. The only way to do that is compassionate consequences. I get it. Compassionate consequences. Go sensory. Let's get you feeling a little bit better. Positive acknowledgement for the human. What's going on right now? Yeah, get your point. I'm acknowledging you. I'm recognizing you for this thing that you are doing that's healthy. Thank you. Now, does Lupe still have to come and see me after school? Yes. Yes, she does. Yeah, but how does that child feel here? The one who's been stranded. He's oh, getting a, yeah. He's getting a point and she's getting nothing. Well, she's getting a point for doing the thing that's trying to make it better. Yeah, but she didn't have to do that. So but she's not getting a point. She's being strangled. So how does she feel? Oh, well, here's the deal. You know the kids that have less of these, right, than the ones who do? She already had about 12 points stacked up. It's the Lupe's of the world that never get the points. It's a miracle for them to get a point. So it's not about, listen, I'm not rewarding the behavior she engaged in. There is a consequence for the behavior she engaged in. But it doesn't keep getting applied like she has a prison sentence. It doesn't work that way. That's how we keep the animal and we don't, we don't get the human and the learner back. So this is highly essential, is that this particular student had her points stocked up because it's much easier for her. Lupe was really one of our most difficult ones. And if she doesn't get chances to get those points, she's never going to be healthier for this person and for the room. But yes, did we all do our 60 seconds? Did we all? Did I check in? Did I keep doing close physical proximity to her throughout the day? Yes, I did. Lots and lots of ways. Lots of smiling. Lots and lots of ways of helping her to see I'm, I'm in control here. I'm the leader. I'm the grown-up. And, and when you're with me, there will be consequences for that. We're ignoring a lot of things right now. Have you noticed? There are certain things that I don't want ignored. 
like the, the, the bullying, like the racial comments, the, uh, you know, misogynist. You know, there's ways that they're just verbally abusing each other. And we are telling ourselves, oh, that's just how it is in the culture today, I guess, right? Like, that's how kids talk to each other today. Not in your room. Because when that goes on in your room and you don't do anything about it, everybody knows their turn is coming and when it's their turn, you're not about to do anything to help them. They're on their own. Completely undermine safety in your room. It is okay, right? It doesn't have to be a big shaming reaction where you spend five minutes lecturing the class. No, it's just, excuse me, you know that doesn't happen in here. I'll see you after class and move on. That's it. It's just got to be the firm. And this is why this grounding and support is so important to you, that you have the boundary in your body. Not, I'm floating, I'm so stressed or whatever. Stop doing that. You know, please stop doing that. Would you please stop doing that? What is that? Nobody hears that. Nobody hears that. This they hear. Excuse me. You will stop. I will see you. We're moving on. That's a boundary. Do you feel the difference? You, they, they, they're sensory beings. Please understand. They're soaking up the tension, the solidity, or the wishy-washy. They're soaking that up. That's sensory. Okay? When you get tighter. Remember one time driving, my son was young, and I'm driving in the car, and, and uh, you know, somebody cut me off, and I just went like this. That's it. That's all I did. I went like that. That's all I did. My son goes, Mama, what's wrong? Just like that. Full-blown alert. Full-blown fear. Full-blown terror. Because, and all he saw was, I got a little tight. That's it. That's all he saw. Please know, they're exquisitely sensitive. So we've got to be doing that, okay? And of course, what do we normally say? What would we say if you went, Mama, what's wrong? What would you say? Nothing. That's what we say. Nothing. Guess what that does? Now their whole sensory system, right? This is how we were taught to doubt our gut instinct and our sensory system. That is telling us, you better believe there's something wrong. And so thank goodness I had this neuroscience before, right? So I said, you noticed that, didn't you? Look at you. Talk about, right? You really noticed. Yes, somebody just cut me off, hon. But you know what? I'm going to slow down a little bit. They're gone. I got it. I got you. I got you. I got you. I'm acknowledging your sensory system. Yeah, man, trust that. You're right on. Not lying. And then this confusion of, really, nothing's wrong? Because it really feels like something's wrong. That's how we're messing the whole thing up. Okay. Not on purpose. (laughs) We don't mean to. Okay. So this competence now, okay? Now we're going to move to competence. Um, op- oh, you know, I just want to let you know that Lupe wanted another repair. She always liked to sing a song, okay? ED kids, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> but she did. And so when she came to see me after class, I said, listen, I get it. Whatever you were perceiving, some kind of threat, right? Let's just feel better. And how do you want to make this right? And she already knew. She knew the song she was going home to get, and she was bringing it in the next day and playing it for her friend. So, you know, they'll have ideas for how they want to repair it, um, and just allow them. 
allow them in the way that they need to. They want to write a little note or put a little smiley face or a sticker in somebody's desk or I've delivered so many little notes to the principal's office, you know, all the ways that they are trying to repair without too much humiliation around making a public statement of sorry, okay? Okay, now, <clears throat> confidence. Confidence is the I can. I can. And how do we know we can? Do we know we can because you're telling me I can? Okay. Yeah. We know we can because we've done it. We've had the experience of doing it successfully. That's how we know we can. So when we say, you can do it. I know you can. If you would just believe in yourself the way I believe in you, right? We do that. It sounds great. It doesn't change the nervous system. The change in the nervous system to one of I can, you better believe I can, is because they have. We've got to give them opportunities over and over to do the thing they can do, even if it's tell a joke or pull the stuff off the wall. <laughs> I mean, for some of them, that's about it right now. Right now. Until they have greater self-regulation. Here's how quickly this shifted for a 10-year-old I worked with who was an ED student. This, I was working in my little uh, closet, you know, a uh, school psychologist working in closets. And I was in my closet, and he came, you know, he had to come see the, the psychologist, right? So he does his walk of shame to my office. And he comes in. The reason that he was in uh, the ED room is because he hadn't produced a lick of work for two entire years. Two entire years. And so, and actually he was now 10, right? So it was like a third grade burnout situation where it was just too much, too soon, too fast, and it kept going, and he had all the stuff going on in his life, and he never had his homework, and you know what I mean? You get to third grade, and it's like, you know what? <laughs> bad words, bad words. But that's what the nervous system says. It says, I'm not doing this anymore, man. I'm done. So he was done. He didn't do anything for two years. That's how he ended up in this ED room. And now he comes to me in the walk of shame, and he says to me, I'm not doing anything for you, you know. I'm not going to do anything. And I said, okay, gosh, you know what? That sounds good. <laughs> Let's not do anything. Enough with the doing. Don't mind me. I'm just going to be sitting here looking at my picture. Because I always have this picture, right? It's a little different than this, but... I have these pictures. Don't mind me. So he, of course, is a little curious looking at the picture. And there is an instantaneous effect of nature, even when it's just a picture, on the parasympathetic. Well, we're just sitting there. Now, you have to understand, it's not just the picture. He's come to a, a room that is pretty sensorily pleasing. We do have to pay attention to how sensorily pleasing our spaces are. You know, the, the, the animal brain, if it has too many things to scan and notice and everything's all over the place and, you know, nothing has its place, and, you know, this is very alarming to the... So how, how our spaces is, is important. Um, he came to a sensorily pleasing place, and we were quiet. I didn't start talking at him. I didn't say, what brings you here? What do you think is wrong? If you would tell me, then I can help you. You know, all this kind of stuff that just makes the amygdala keep going. We were just quiet. I'm not doing anything for you. Okay, gosh, I love the idea of not doing anything. <coughs> Don't mind me. I'll just be sitting here breathing in through my nose. 
Yeah, exactly, right? You sneak them in. You sneak them in. So then he got curious, you know, after he, what happened was with the picture and all of this stuff going on, he went into the, uh, he grabbed a stuffed animal, believe it or not, and sat in a beanbag chair that was in the room. So he's sitting there with all this sensory stuff, and within minutes, I don't know how many minutes, but I'm ready to write this down again because this is starting to feel like a miracle, because he gets up and, and he goes to take a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'm thinking, he hasn't done anything in two years. He's about to do something. Oh my gosh, I've got to put this one in the book, is what I'm thinking. This is back when I was writing the first book. And no, no, he put that pencil to the paper, and I mean, there wasn't even a mark on it when I looked at it later. He crumpled it up and stomped on it. He said, I can't get it right. I told you, I can't do anything. I can't get it right. This perfectionism, right? From being criticized too much, not getting it quite right or doing it fast enough or doing it... Right? And this, this overburdened nervous system with all the criticism. So now there's this perfectionism in a lot of these kids. And if it's not going to be perfect, it's not going to be. So they just stop. Because the failure is more humiliating than sitting here and not doing anything anymore. So there he is in that. And then that's when I say again, I go, okay, I went, listen, you don't have to do anything. I'm serious. We can sit here and do nothing. Don't mind me. I'm going to be feeling my feet on the ground, whatever it was at that time. I just introduced one at a time. Well, the breath one, he went, because I said I'm going to be breathing in through my nose. He went like this. <laughs> like he'd never taken a breath in through his nose in his life. A few minutes later, and really honestly, it's like tiny little minutes, like this was very uh, short time. He said, I only have 20 minutes for each of these kids. And how it is. So he was looking for 20 minutes. He said, I know what I want to do. And I really? What do you want to do? He said, I want to play hide and seek. And I thought, what have I done? I can't play hide and seek. Oh no. But of course, because I knew the neuroscience, first of all, what was he asking for, do you think? What was that about? Huh? Attention, for sure, and wanting me to find him. You're a good analyst. That would be a good way to, you know, if you were lying on Freud's couch, he'd probably have something to say about that. Um, yes, and play, right? Play? Just, just, you know, can we just do something that feels a little better, that's a little more flowy and a little more fun, where there isn't really a wrong or a right answer? Right? And this comes, I, I wish I had time to tell you about all that neuroscience, but it comes from, you know, before, before um, the brain has the cognitive capacity to understand the difference between when you get something wrong, it doesn't mean you're bad. That comes at about eight. What we're doing right now is from zero to eight, we're doing drill cards, we're having playing team sports, and there's a right way and a wrong way. And from a young, young age, they're learning, oh, I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't run fast enough. I didn't hit it in the right. I'm not standing in the right place. The right, the right, the right. I'm getting it wrong, right? I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand this word. I, I can't get it right. And in kindergarten now, we're sending them home with the sad faces, right? We're sending them home with sad faces. Now, that sad face to a five-year-old and a six-year-old and a seven-year-old is, I am bad. Now, we want to have this intellectual conversation where we say, honey, it's your behavior. It's not you. <laughs> it's your behavior that's bad. It's not you. 
Now this is what we can do with our neocortex. They don't have that. All they register is, I'm bad. I did something bad, I didn't get it right, I'm bad. Now we're swimming in the shame state. Now we're swimming in the shame. I can't get anything right, when am I ever gonna be good enough? So with him, he wanted to play hide and seek, and I knew the neuroscience, and my closet happened to be the, um, the uh, storage facility for musical instruments, because having, you know, of course we don't have music in schools anymore, so it was just collecting dust in that room, and it was attached to the stage, which was attached to the auditorium. So talk about divine intervention. I thought, I'm closing all the doors and windows, I don't want anybody to see what we're doing, but... I don't have any time with this kid. I've got 20 minutes. You better believe that I am going to grab this little opening to help him feel his I can. So he would come once a week for 20 minutes is all I could see this boy as I was driving all over to see all the ED kids. Once a week for 20 minutes I got to see him. And I gave him a different experience of his nervous system. He would hide, and I would, for the life of me, I just couldn't find him anywhere. Where are you? Where are you? And of course, I hear him giggling somewhere, right? But very genuinely, I couldn't find him. And I'd say, where are you? You're getting so good at this. You're just better and better every time, and you're the best hider I've ever played hide and seek with, you know, this stuff. And he would jump out and say, I'm here. You couldn't find me. And then he had this little dance. You couldn't find me. You couldn't find me. <laughs> right? Feel this. Feel this power. Feel that power. That's inside body. That's physiology. That's juice. That's dopamine. That's serotonin. That is I can and I know I can because I did. And then I said to him, Noticing makes the neurons fire stronger. And I said, look at you. Your chest is out. Gosh, it's almost like you want to beat your chest. And you'd go, yes, I do. And I'd say, can you feel your legs? Can you feel how strong you are right now? Yes, I can. In the awareness of his power, experiencing his power to connect those neural pathways again. You do have power, you just need to be experiencing it more. You haven't been experiencing it for a while. That's how we rewire the brain. And then what he started to do, it was 10 weeks later, I'll never forget where I was standing on the stage. I always met him in the middle of the stage. The door was there. He'd come in, come up to the stage, and he came in one day and he said, could we do something different today? And I thought, yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to want to shoot hoops or something like that. You know what he wanted? He said, can I take a spelling test? A spelling test. You want to take a spelling test? You haven't done anything in two years and you want to take a spelling test? A test! It was unbelievable. Unbelievable what ended up happening. You know, just, he started doing stuff in class, we started sharing back and forth what he was doing for me, what he was doing there, and just strengthening it and strengthening it. But that was the little window into the nervous system to build its strength back and those neural pathways back. And then we saw he was a fantastic speller. You know, he wasn't keeping up with too much too soon, too fast because of things going on in his home life and all kinds of things that I will not mention because it's very sad stuff. Okay, so we are creating opportunities 
for them to succeed. So if it's telling the joke, ripping the stuff off the walls, or being your helper, or sharpening the pencils, or delivering the papers, you know, you know how to make these little ones your special helper, or your this or that. It's, they've got to have their role and contribution to make at whatever they're good at. You know, Johnny wants to tell that joke. You know, I, I remember this one particular Johnny. And um, he had learned that if he kept his mom laughing at night, she'd drink fewer martinis. So he learned, you know, if I can keep her laughing, then there's not going to be any alcohol poisoning tonight, and we're not going back to the hospital. And so what they're learning to do, they bring to school, and now they feel your tension. <laughs> they feel the tension in the room, just like they feel it at home. And so that adaptive skill that they've learned, they want to bring it into this situation that really seems to call for it. That's why it's so important. So he feels his power that way. He's controlling more of his universe through his humor. And he wants to bring that into your room. It's a gift. Let him if you can. If you can, you'll find what works for you. Okay, now um, here's what math teachers are doing. Can you tell me my time? Because I really want to honor the 2.30 time. Okay, 207. So maybe I can't go over what math teachers are doing. Does anybody really want me to go over how math teachers are? Okay, okay, all right, here we go. So, so a teacher came in, it was a high school uh, math leader, like team leader, and she took this stuff back to her team, and she said, okay, that's it. Here's how we're doing it differently. First of all, we are not going to have the problem on the board when the kids first walk in. So they're having math trauma all the way down the hall. Okay, so hear the amygdala, because it's going to come to your math class, all right? And this may be true for, for you in other subjects. I'm just sharing this particular math teacher story, but it can be applied to all of us. So, you know, they're going into the math class. Now they're seeing the math problem on the board going, oh, yeah, right, Chinese. Like, who's solving that today, right? And it just keeps them elevated. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know how to do the thing we did last year that's remotely related to that. I mean, I don't know how to do this. So they stay in this Kindle and they go. Instead, they took the problem down from the front. They, there were no problems when the kids first walked into class. What was there instead? Do you know what she did instead? Yep. Yep. And then she did the 60 seconds with them. Now, she conducted an experiment because of my hide my and seek story. Because it only took 10 weeks. Remember, once a week for 20 minutes. And in 10 weeks, he wanted to take a math test when he hadn't done anything in two years. To me, it's another miracle. So she said, you know, this team leader was like, how long is this going to take? They, they tested and said, all right, here's an experiment, because she, uh, she knew that I introduce everything as an experiment. I think it's fun to do that. And said to the kids, all right, here's what we're doing today. Nothing on your desks, please. I'm going to be giving you a blank sheet of paper, and all I want you to do is write down one equation of what you already know how to do in math, and then really convincing them, listen, whatever you already know how to do, don't you be saying it's dumb or it's stupid or it's too easy or who cares. I care. I'm going to show you why it matters that you know how to do that in math. So come on. I'm excited. So apparently... The papers came back, and they put them into piles. You know, seven could do this, you know, similar thing. Five of them could do this similar thing. And so put them in piles, and then wrote on the board, okay, I'm excited. Seven of you know how to do this. Of course, no names on the paper, right? No names on the paper. All anonymous, they need to know that. 
Seven of you know how to do this. Here's another example. Here's another example. And here's why I'm so excited you already know how to do that in math. Because when you want to go to the movies and buy something, you know, bringing it to a real life, always bringing it to that real life um, uh, importance of knowing that particular thing. And you're excited and they're thinking, okay, well, she's excited about that. I guess it's something. Maybe I know a little something. And then they gave those students, they, they matched those, what the kids were able to do, and matched, found worksheets that matched what they are able to do. And the experiment was, how long are they going to have to do this laying the foundation business that Reggie was talking about, right? Like, we don't have any time. I don't have time to go back and lay a foundation. And of course, I'm saying you can't afford to not take the time to go back and lay the foundation. Your whole life will work so much easier for you if you take the time to lay the foundation. And it goes so much faster than you think. So she wanted to test that. They went home back and forth where they did their worksheets of what they already knew how to do and got 100%. Way to go. Smiley face. Love it. Stickers. Whatever. And those kids got to experience their competency in this. And so they wanted to know how long is it going to take before that system wants to be challenged, wants to take the spelling test, right? They came, and she said more than half the class between the first and second week, so a week and a half. Now, this was block, so they didn't see each other every day. It was, it was block. But a week and a half into the experiment, more than half of her class came and said, Okay, I got it, I got it, what else? What else you got? Challenge me, take me to the next thing. Now, of course, we have to be in the Vygotsky zone of proximal development, right? We're not like, okay, now you're gonna solve this physics problem. Um, no, that doesn't work. But taking them to the next and the next. And those things fill in so much faster than you think when it's coming out of this big physiology of I can. Everything gets easier. Everything starts happening with more flow. Okay, now, I want you to know about what doesn't work. This is going to be a lot of review. So we're going to quickly go through these things and you're out of here at 2.30. Um, anger management. We keep sending them to anger management. Why doesn't it work? Because it's lots of words. It's helping you to know better, but it's not shifting your physiology so that it can do better. It's only when we feel better that we do better. So we don't want to be, you know, we make them aware in anger management, right? The ABCs of anger, and you didn't like this consequence, so you better change the behavior. You better identify the antecedents. Cognitive, cognitive, cognitive. Analyzing this stuff to death, which does nothing to shift this. It's just more words. Like our reasoning and our talking. You know, so anger management, it doesn't just not work. It's dangerous. It makes things worse. Because when you know better and still can't do better, your shame increases. So they actually leave out of those situations feeling more ashamed because now they're in the moment with their Kindle amygdala and they're going, oh my God, why, why can't I do, what did, what did that guy tell me to do? Count to 10, count to 10, walk away, right? All these things that require this neocortex that they don't have, that it's shut down. So they can't remember, they can't put it together and they don't have enough self-regulation to actually utilize that so-called tool of counting to 10 or going to find somebody to help. Um, reasoning and talking. Why is this? It, it, obviously, it doesn't work for the same reason um, as the anger management. But why is it dangerous? Reasoning and talking is dangerous because you're spending more time on this particular student, get home safe, 
Yeah, no, I know. I totally understand. Um, my, um, sorry, turn. You're spending more time, I love you, um, on this particular student than any of your other students. You know, you take some of these guys and gals under your wing. And you might even share something a little personal. You know, you're trying to bond. You're giving them your best pearls of wisdom, all your great advice, taking all kinds of time to do that with them. And you shake on it, right, like we talked about earlier. And they look you in the eye and they say, okay, I got it. I got it. Thank you for that. I'm going to go. We give them a little pep talk, right? And off they go, and how soon are they doing it again? Now, we are like, you know what, kid? I'm done with you. I spend more time on you than anybody else. I've given you my best advice. You don't want to follow my advice? Fine. Don't take my advice. Right? This is what we do. And now, that last person, because you might be, that really was hanging in there and trying to do your best for this child. And, and it's gone. You've said, you know what? I'm done. You don't want to take my advice? Bye-bye. That's very dangerous. I mean, feel that student just sinking down to the end of the ocean, the bottom of the ocean. Okay. Power struggles we learned, right? So when we get pulled in and this, and now they know we're crazy too, that's a big problem. So it not only doesn't work, it really does erode safety. It erodes our integrity. It's a mess. That's an absolute mess. So we've got to be taking care of ourselves. Listen, I just had a power struggle with my son the other day. This stuff is not perfect. Okay? You can know it and know it and apply it and apply it. We are human. So this is the compassion piece that you have for yourself. You know? It's not going to be perfect. And that you have for them because it's not going to be perfect for them either. Using resources as a reward, you already know why that's so dangerous. Without the resource, a resource is bread and water. A resource is bread and water. It's necessary. So if you're withholding it because you think it's a reward, right? I don't want him to walk around the track. He feels good when he walks around the track. He's been making me feel like junk for a long time. Why would I want him to feel good? No, 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 no. Right? This is what we do. And it's working against us. That's all. I just want us to become more aware of the things that we're doing without meaning to that are making our jobs harder. And that's, that's another one of them. Time out, we know it's time in now. We talked about how to do that differently. The time out is very shaming. It's saying, it's not normal for you to not keep it together 24 hours a day. Really? Okay. Loss of points and privileges, please. Have them, if you want to do points and privileges, have them, you know, not start with 500 points. You know those programs where you start with something and then you lose it? I mean, you can feel that in your own physiology, can't you? Uh-uh. It's the pulling of the car, the changing the number, the losing the points. If they've already earned a point, oh, have fun taking it away, right? You know, I could have said to Lupe with her one sad little point that was on the thing, right? Everybody else has all their points stacked up. <laughs> Lupe's name is barely on the board. And she does that, and I say, oh, Lupe, oh, you're off the board. Oh, I really, you had earned that point. I was so happy for you, but gone. Gone and then gone. 
Who can work with that nervous system? Don't make yourself work with that nervous system. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. Punching a pillow. Freud thought there was something called catharsis. Wrong. <laughs> you know, we had it right way before Freud with William James. He called it physiological psychology. He knew that there's so much physiology underneath all of this psychology, some of it nonsense, um, I have to say. And then we got Freud who wanted to analyze everything. And he said, you know, punch that pillow, take it out on the pillow, take it out. This healthy expression of anger. No, exactly. We can feel that in our nervous system. Does that make us feel more at ease and in the flow? No. It keeps that amygdala going and it strengthens those neural pathways to become deeply embedded in the brain structure, which is why a lot of our athletes can't keep it on the field and they can't keep it in the ring. What you're engaging in over and over again becomes your automatic go-to. The second somebody stresses you, boom, you're doing the thing that you've been repeatedly doing. We got to... It's this. This is what we have to be repeatedly doing. And walking in nature and doing all that other great stuff. Being with animals and smiling more. Letting people in here in L.A. May I suggest that you let people in when you're driving? It's, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. You're driving on the freeway, right? And everything's urgent, right? Get out of my way. Ping, ping, ping. Throwing the birds out the window. Excuse me. And that was not for you. <laughs> you know, I got to get to work now. I got lots of important things to do, right? And there we go, and we're cutting people off and the whole gamut, right? Oh, I have to tell you, I am in recovery. Road rage. I am a road rage recoverer. And now, it is so fun. It is so fun to let people in. What do they do when you let them in? And smiling is contagious, and then you're smiling. And then you do this funny little thing. Your neocortex does it. It starts making up stories like, oh, I bet you he was rushing off to, to get his kids to school this morning, too. We're all just trying to get to work and do the best we can. You know, it's really this seriously kumbaya place. It feels fabulous. Like, I'm getting a high right now. I'm dead serious. I'm visualizing this, and my neurons are firing, and I'm feeling fabulous. Grounded and fabulous. Just imagining that exchange. Okay, um, there's no healthy expression. We need to do this instead. Problem-focused consultations. Please notice how you feel when you leave consultations, right? Is that what we call them? We go to an SST meeting or whatever we're calling them these days and we're there at the meeting and we want to identify the problem. Oh God, don't we all know what the bloody problem is? <laughs> all right, let's identify the problem. Let's, um, right, where does it happen and when and who's it happening with and blah, blah, blah. And what happens is everybody pipes in with their story. Oh, yeah, he does that with me, too. I can't stand it, right? And then even people will hear and go, oh, are you talking about Victor? Oh, man, I thought I And now we're all in there talking about Victor and the problem, and oh, my gosh, you know how we leave those consultations? Going, where is that Victor anyway? <laughs> We can't do it. We've got to stop talking about the problem. 
just focus on the solution. Wear the rose-colored glasses. Honestly, it's possible. It's possible. There are momentary little lapses in their insanity. <laughs> and they might actually be doing something for a minute, maybe once, maybe twice. <laughs> it's a miracle. But if you start to notice, and especially as you add all of this and are giving self-regulation, you're going to notice more and more. But please focus on when the problem doesn't exist. Oh, oh my gosh, is that actually Johnny sitting there and doing something? What's different about this moment? And really notice when the, when the behavior that is annoying is not happening or when the behavior that you really want is happening. If you start to pay attention to those conditions that allow for greater success, is it a certain time of day? Is it a certain, you know, did, I, did he have recess today? You know, did I lay off with this homework stuff? Am I smiling more? Am I, right? What is it? What's going on? But something is creating the conditions within which success is possible. And that's what the neuroscience is clear about. It's all about non-specific factors. Non-specific factors are what create greater self-regulation and success. Non-specific factors are the conditions we create that make success possible. And the conditions are our safety and our relationship and our teaching the actual tools, allowing them to practice, taking the shame out, you know, putting the compassion in, all of these different things, okay? So, um, all of what works is review. Completely review, review. And of course, you know, you need to apply this stuff for parents too. You know, just coming at it from a different from a different. From, from the rose-colored glasses. What is working? What are you noticing is starting to shift? And have some good news for parents. Otherwise, they don't hear anything you're saying. They're going, oh my God, the school called. Ah. And they're not in their body and they can't hear Charlie Brown's teacher on the telephone. This brain is shut down in those situations. Okay, so we've already covered some of this stuff. I can't go over all of it. What time is it? Is it time? Okay, I'm going to use the seven minutes. I'm using them. Okay, so okay, so, some teachers are doing these theme songs, music for transition. See, anything sensory, right? The community has a theme song. This is, see, these are teachers emailing me to say what they're doing to go more sensory, to create more community, more safety, more fun, lightening it up a little bit, right? So they're using, they have a little theme song that plays while the kids are coming down the hall, and they say, hey, and they wave at them, right? They're standing in the hall. How's it going? Good to see you. Pat on the back, even if I'm really happy you went home yesterday. We can try again today. Let's try again today. And, and the difference that that's making. Choice for sense of control. They're all self-soothing. What are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? Is that what they're doing? Doing that? Doing that? Doing that? Oh, doing that. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's all self-soothing. It's self-soothing of anxiety. So they're not in the zone, not in the zone, um, and desperately trying to get in because they know they feel better there. That's a place of relief. So they're doing everything. And of course, all these other unhealthy things like we talked about earlier and all the different addictions, right? And our cliques in high school are completely based on how they're soothing, what their addiction is. Are they the bar, you know, we got the eating disorder group over here and the alkies over here, I don't know what they're called now, the druggies over here, whatever you want to call it. Our cliques are entirely set up around self-soothing and self-medicating. That's what they are. They find each other and they teach each other how to feel better because we haven't gotten to them to do it. So, um, give them choice. That's driving you crazy. 
And that means you're out of your zone. <laughs> so, so your amygdala is going. You're not in your zone. And that's going to make you as Exactly. Okay? So what we need to do instead is we need to find what's acceptable to you. First of all, you got the 60 seconds happening every day. So you're going to see this less. They're not going to have to go to the bathroom as much. They're not going to, all the things they're doing right now, I'm pulling, I'm stuttering, they're pulling out their hair. All the things they're doing, you're going to see less and less of that as you build that self-regulation through the 60 seconds. But until you get there, I want you to give them a choice. You decide. Is it a little sensory ball? Is it a gel pad that they can squish on their desk? Is it a rubber band? Is it, right? Something that they can have um, that is soothing for them that doesn't make all that racket. And this is what happens when you have a community that's talking about the big white elephant in the room. We're not punishing with shame that you're doing that. We're going, that's normal. I know. This is what I do. And I always shared with my ED students that before the 60 seconds in my life, you could find me anywhere at any time with my legs crossed, rocking back and forth. Rocking back. It just feels good. Now, um, I'm happy to say, in recovery for that too. Um, (laughs) Lots of recovery for Reggie. Um, So now I want you to know that there are these other things and that it's an evidence-based RTI intervention. It's called replacement behavior technique. You are recognizing the important function that that behavior serves and you are not taking it away. It's it's serving an important function. It is soothing to that child to have that. You don't take that away without replacing it with another behavior that's less annoying to you that serves the same soothing function. Okay? That's replacement behavior technique. Now, oh gosh, organ, organizational little, not drills, but you set the little timer, you know, five minutes once a week, helping them to get their stuff together, right? Get it together, we say. Helping them to do that, allotting a little bit of time for them to get more organized and know where things are and clean out that desk is so soothing to everybody. I have classes that do it as a whole class and every kid gets a shelf or a drawer or a file and they just work on it a little bit over time and they get that before and after feeling of look what we did to our room. Doesn't this feel better? Just once a week for five minutes. What can we work on to get it feeling better? Um, So that happens and is very soothing. Okay, last two things and we're out of here. Mirroring statements exactly. So, here we go. What is your name? Isabel. So Isabel is sitting here, and all of a sudden, Isabel says, she's working, she's your student, she's working, working, and all of a sudden, Isabel goes, I can't do it! What do we say? Yes, you can. That's what we say. Yes, you can. Let me show you how, right? Let me go over to show them, and they go, great, you're showing me that you can. I can't. But anyway, so if you say, yes, you can, what do they say back? Okay, but do they say it like that? Exactly. They'll say it even more convincingly. It becomes even tighter now, right? You said, you know, you said, I can't. And I say, yes, you can. And you say, no, I can't. Even more, right? Now the fight's on. Here it is. Here it is. Let's do this, right? They're addicted. There's an addiction to this level of arousal. An absolute addiction. It's what they're used to. It's what they know. Their amygdala is going. Something's wrong. And they're ready to take you on. Okay? That's what we're trying to rewire. Now, if instead I said, and you can do this either way, you can say, you can't.
can't do it. Like you just said, I can't do it. You can either say, I can't do it, and mirror it exactly, or you can say, you can't do it. And you have to say it as intensely as they did. That's called limbic resonance. When you do that, the, the, it's, and believe me, they'll go like this, they'll go. <laughs> That's it? You just heard what I said. You're not going to convince me otherwise? Where's the fight? What's going on here? What's the, right? You're not, you're not coming in. And that opens them up. They start to feel just a little bit more present. There's a little bit more safety for them to be present. And then you say, you know what? Right now, it feels like you can't. Not, I know you can because you were doing it yesterday. No. Okay? Yesterday was a different day. Ten minutes ago was a different nervous system. There is enough. There hits a point where it's enough and there's a shutdown. And in this moment, I can't. Now, because we know the neuroscience, we recognize there's, there's a point. And this is the point right now. So, I know, you can't. right now it feels like you can't. Right? And then you give your signal and you say, I'm going to show you something. Remember what you were working on yesterday that you got really good and you started doing it really fast. Can we go back to that? Just go back to that. Do that for a few minutes and I'll come and check on you. Okay? Now, here are the 13 different things that you've just done to trigger the parasympathetic. You've done limbic resonance. Soothe immediately. You've, you've of course, created more relationship because you're saying, you're not going, why do you think you can't do it? No, you're going, right now it feels like you can't do it. So you know what? Right now? Now that just signaled five tools. Right? This signal now, because you're doing it every day, it's a gestalt. You bring your awareness to one part of that tool, their whole body will go to the whole thing. They'll feel planted, they'll feel grounded, they'll feel that breath, and it'll just feel like a big relief. Then I'm coming over here, close physical proximity. And, you know, I'm usually smiling, as you can tell, I'm kind of smiling, yeah. Um, so your smile is decreasing heart rate, blood pressure, cortisol. Close physical proximity does the same thing. Now I'm having her go back and, and marinate in her mastery, right? Confidence, the I can. I want her back into her I can with something that now will be really easy for her to do. And it's building up her sense of confidence, mastery, through this, through this marinating in it. There, there are juices happening. When you're working on something that you know how to do well, oh my gosh, you've got all those great juices flowing. So this takes about 20 seconds. Now, mind you, it isn't like a five-second thing. Okay, let's go, let's do it, right? But when they can't, they can't. So we either do these things that trigger that parasympathetic, and there's many of them there. Oh, gosh, I wish I could do a little bit more on that. But what time is it? I want, I want you to have extra response time for oppositional defiant disorder. Are we out? It's 32. I have to respect your time. I have to respect your time. Yes? Or do you want me to quickly do it? You, you can do it. Just quickly do it? Okay. Okay. Oppositional defiant disorder. We already know it's the freeze. Right? Dr. Bruce Perry. We talked about this earlier. It's the I can't, I'm done. They're in that freeze response. Okay? What do you do with a frozen chicken? You thaw it. Okay, how do you de-thaw your frozen chicken? Oh, I was afraid somebody would say that. Oh, that's some chewy chicken. Oh, that's some nasty chewy chicken. Okay, if you notice, when you try to speed up thawing something that's frozen, it's not good. No. You know, really the best thing, just so you know, the best thing to de-thaw that chicken is... 
Sure, put it in the water, right? And give it some time. Who here doesn't need time and space? Anybody here? Yeah, we have plenty, right? Are we feeling like we got lots of time and lots of space? Everything's good, we're in our flow? No. We all need more time and space. And a frozen chicken needs some time and space. A frozen nervous system needs more time to respond. An hour? No. No. When you're doing all these other things, you see how if you've got all the other things going and you're building up self-regulation with 60 seconds and in all these other ways we've talked about, that no, it takes less and less time, but it does need some time. And here's how you create a little bit more, okay? So here's, here's what happened with Deborah when she was, this isn't true, I'm making all this up, but here's what happened with Deborah. When Deborah was in second grade, she was, you know, she had a little bit of a kind of a kindled amygdala, but not, not quite kindled, but she was, you know, elevated. Her baseline level of anxiety had increased because there were drill cards and, and, you know, there was testing in kindergarten and lots of homework, and so that never really felt great to Deborah. But she's hanging in there. She's not in third grade burnout yet or anything like that. She's hanging in there. But, you know, I'm still a little bit of uh, Charlie Brown's teacher on the telephone. And I go over and I say, I say, uh, Hey, I need you to go to your cubby, get your math, and turn to page 85 for me. Start right away, all right? I'll check on you in a minute. Boom. Now, she's sitting there, and she's going, she's heard some words. She's got, she's got some of this going, but this is also kind of going, okay? And she, she hears cubby. She hears backpack. So, you know, she's sitting there, and she's going, you know, okay, I didn't hear the whole thing, but let me, she, in second grade, she goes, you know what? I'm going to go get my backpack. I'm pretty sure that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so she goes to the cubby, and she goes, yeah, I'm sure that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nervous, nervous, right? Grabs the backpack and sits down at her desk with the backpack. What do we say? What are you doing? That is not what I said. Right? Are we having a little language issue? No. Depending on, depending on how unregulated we are. It could get ugly, but anyway, let's hope it doesn't. So, so you know, we say, we say things that increase it rather than decrease it. Here's what we can do instead, because what happens, right, is she comes by fifth grade now. Because if I say to her, what, what are you doing? That humiliation, it beats down, and soon enough she's like, you know what, I'm done. It's safer for me not to respond than to do the wrong thing and be publicly humiliated. Forget it. So now you get her in the fifth grade, let's say, and you're like, given the direction, and this is it. You're doing it perfectly, actually, Deborah. <laughs> it's just sitting there like this. No way. That no brain is so deeply great. Here's how you create more space. I've got to get you out of here. Um, Deborah. Hi, have I even said hi to you today, by the way? <laughs> Hello. I need to ask you to do something for me. Would you get your math and start on page 85? I'm going to check on you in a bit. Now, that took how many seconds longer? The other thing that you can add, right? So maybe she's still sitting there. And maybe what you do instead of going, hurry up, um, you might not want to do that. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, instead of doing that, you might want to go back and say, Deborah, I can repeat that. Would you like me to? Sometimes I need things repeated. And now she's going, huh? What happened to her? She went to another seminar again. <laughs> giving, me a, giving me a chance to hear it again, huh? 
Okay. So then you might say it again. Can you get your map and turn to page 85? I'll come and check on you. You're going to get so much more compliance. Now, what have you done? All the things that have done the parasympathetic here. So the first thing is you smiled and greeted her. Hello, she's a person. We're so busy out there. Are we connecting at all in any way whatsoever? Okay, everybody's here. Let's go. Bell to bell. No, that's not how human beings work. It's just not how we work. So we greet, we say hello, we smile. Now this is delaying. Do you see how this is giving that nervous system a little bit more time? Now you're cueing. You're using her name to cue the brain and to say, I need you to do something for me. You see how you're preluding. And that's creating more time and space. And it's creating time for her brain and nervous system to know that a direction is coming. Then, of course, you bring the direction down to two things. That's it. Not go to the cubby and get out your backpack and get your math and turn to it. No, just get your math. I don't care where it is. Get your math and turn to page 85. Two directions. And then I'll check on you. Now feel that. And I did that over here too. Oh, Deborah, can you feel that, that I just moved away? Oh, God, that feels good. <laughs> oh, it feels so good. To back off that situation where you're trying to get compliance, where you're trying to change the thing with urgency. This has to happen now, because I just said it. No, time and space, let that urgency go, which you cannot do without using your tools, but if you're using your tools, the urgency goes. And you allow the time and space that we all need. This time and space that I just gave, guess who I gave it to? Both of us. We need the time and space. Back off the situation. Let your nervous system regulate. You'll get a lot more compliance that way. And it takes seconds. That was just seconds to do it that different way. Thank you. I loved being here. I'm sorry that I went over the 2.30. I'm going to stay right here in case anybody needs anything and get home safely. Okay? Yes.